Let's start recording because I don't like the cut of your guys' jib right now. We're recording right now. You guys are all tight, all types of cocky already. The boys are back. Big Bill McCarthy, Rory Lynch, Rory the what was it? What's his nickname you gave him? Arian? The Southern Hemisphere Hitman. That's a it <laughs> roll rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? And, well, we can call him the New Zealand nightmare. I like Ooh. Rory the yeah, yeah. The New Zealand nightmare. Yeah. Good. Oh, yeah. And um Arian Messi Kamesi. Uh, talking about the New Zealand nightmare, we were just talking about um, like some of these nations from Africa. And uh, I was telling you about Charles Apoko was on the podcast. And I think we were looking for a nickname for him. And he was going to get the Nigerian nightmare. And I said, my friend. No, 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 no. Come on. Why, why? What, what you got? Christian Okoye, man. One of my favorite running backs of all time. Okay. So listen, I told him Nigerian nightmare has been used a million times. Yeah. As boxers go, like I'm a boxing fan as well. And I could, there's been a few Nigerian nightmares. Pretty sure Izzy's touched it before. Uh, or no, is that Usman? One Usman. of those fellas, is it Usman? Is the Nigerian nightmare. Ike Bayabuchi, the boxer's Nigerian nightmare. Ike Bayabuchi took it from a boxer before him is a Nigerian nightmare. It's dope. I like uh, it. It's like, it's like the New Zealand nightmare. It works, but it has been done. It's not original. It's like um, if your name's Ray and you're a boxer and you're Sugar Ray, although hold that put a pin in it because i'm going to talk about him later but um but anyways yeah so fellas this podcast we're going to talk about rivalries rivalries in powerlifting first it's a powerlifting podcast but after we hit up some rivalries from our beloved sport of kings and queens we're going to digress into other sports rivalries that we want to bring up and hopefully this opens up some a opens up some storytelling which everybody loves and b might even educate some of the followers because powerlifters don't have the greatest of memories or even knowledge of not even like they forgot but they just never knew in the first place of some of our sports histories we were talking sometimes in the group chat and you're like my man you think people who are like 22 year old juniors right now know who jesse norris is like, dog, Jesse Norris was three years ago. And they're like, yeah, probably still don't know who he is. And it broke my heart to hear that. I legitimately, that breaks my heart to hear that someone might not know who Jesse Norris is. You know, so I think a podcast like this is nice. Where we could go back into some of the biggest rivalries that have helped build our sport, grow our followings. And what is sports if you don't have rivals? That's what sports are all about. Crosstown rivals. If it's team sports or two guys, two girls coming from the same nation, fighting for the same spot. So we'll kick it off. And um, I think I'll start the honors if, if you Do don't it. mind. I'm going to start with, and this is where, if I'm completely honest, this is how it all started. This talk about rivals. Cause I talked about Taylor Atwood's chief rival. And Taylor Atwood unanimously, unanimously agreed with me that it's actually Kajel Becklin. Shell. Shell. Becklin. Thank you, sir. And um, a couple people were saying, look, it's got to be Pug. It's got to be, you know, a bunch of other people they're tagging. So let's get some, let's get a bit of ground rules here first. A, it's not a war if there's only casualties on one side. Let's agree with that. So whoever we're naming, it can't be a one and O situation. It can be bitter 
leading up to and verbal, et cetera. But there's been a couple times that we had heated showdowns and that's a different talk. Heated showdown, Brett Gibbs versus John Heck. Heated showdown, both amazing lifters, quality guys, world champions, both. Not a rivalry, a showdown. There's a difference. Rivalry has history to it. Now, here's what I mean. They have to be close and more than likely, one has won and the other has won at least once a piece. So they both shown, I could beat you, you could beat me. We might not have a resolution yet. We might need a third matchup or so on and so forth. But you at least have, have you beat me once, I beat you once. We are actual rivals. I've shown I could beat you. You've shown you could beat me. And it's hopefully at the top end, but if you guys got some good rivalry stories at the lower local meeting, it's a good story. What the hell? A good story. It's a good story. So let me bring it back to Taylor Atwood and, and Shell Buckland. So, well, 2017 IPF World Championships in Belarus. Taylor Atwood showing up. He's with the strength guys. Jason Tremblay. Taylor's there with his dad as per usual. And they're expecting... Taylor came close in 2016. This should be the year. Backlin ran through, goes eight for eight, breaking the deadlift record in his opener and his second attempt. And by the time he goes to his third deadlift, he was already so far ahead of the rest of the pack, including Taylor, that he's going for the 83 kilo deadlift world record. It's a swing that he's allowed to make, a swing and a miss, may I add, because he already has the win wrapped up. He leads the day with a 557 kilo total, and Taylor had a 733 kilo total. Now, that's how far Beckland was in 2017. It was such a thrashing that afterwards, Taylor's dad actually approached Jason Trombley, the head of the strength guys, and was like, what the fuck happened there? And Jason's like, you know, these kind of things, no. They happen, they, no, they don't happen like that. That was, that was totally one-sided that we did not see coming. Extreme makeover. And this is what rivalries do. You take a loss, you are forced to reevaluate, readjust, change everything you got, and you level up. That's what makes a rivalry. Taylor Atwood and the strength guys completely readjusted, completely leveled up. Now, when you see Taylor Atwood show up at a competition, everyone talks about the team he has around him, right? He's got game day prep. He's got a nutrition coach. He's got programming. What they have in terms of handling, in terms of the scheduling reports on handling, they know your likelihood of, you know, missing your third dead if you miss your third squat, et cetera. They're so overly prepared people talk about how many coaches taylor atwood has in his corner they're like it's almost laughable but they leave no stone unturned they brought in um ben into the fold as well for the strength guys to reevaluate and they rejigged everything and did the whole thing from scratch and remade taylor atwood for the 2018 because like taylor's dad said no it's not it's not what happened on the day of we need to change what ha what's going on in the background. That's what a rivalry does. It makes you level up 2018 Taylor shows up to Calgary world championships. Taylor puts on a, a master performance, a world record squat 
um, edges out the world record with a 500 or 758 kilo total. And nobody was even close in 2018 in the world championships in Calgary. So he breaks Becklin's world record total, however, by one kilo. However, Becklin's not there. Now we have a rivalry, don't we? We have two world champions, Becklin defeated Taylor. Taylor's the reigning world champion, but Becklin's walking around still. And everyone knows he's got to win over Taylor. And obviously Becklin can raise his hand and say, I seen you win the world championships. I wasn't there. You beat everybody else in the world. You didn't beat me though. If you want to be the man, you got to beat me. He hopped on the KOTL podcast, said this much put out his chest. And I loved it. It's, it's, it's the type of stuff that gets people riled up and interested. Oh, and by the way, the 83 kilo deadlift record that he, that he swung and missed because he could it, as a 74, when he was um, taking the title in 2017 against Taylor, he ended up getting later on down the road. So he's also breaking records of weight class up comes on the podcast. And I say, what do you have for Taylor Atwood if he's listening to this podcast leading into the 2019 World Championships in Sweden? And he, say, he said, Taylor, bring your best. Bring your best. Taylor comes on the podcast and responds, it's on. I will bring my best. And you will see a Taylor Atwood like you've never seen. The progress... I've made since 2017 to 2019, he's a whole nother individual. Proof is in the pudding. So they're both one-on-one -one at the world championships, but Taylor needs his revenge against uh, Shale Becklin. 2019 in Sweden, Shale goes in and he, he's, he's got some major hip issues and his squat is not there. He squats, uh, I mean, he's missing squats that he had gotten two years previous and you could tell when you're watching it, it's not going to be the greatest in performance by Becklin, but he shows up anyways, and he's fending off anyone else coming from behind to take that silver. Taylor on the flip side lived up, and you'd never seen a better Taylor Atwood up to that point. Nine for nine performance, a 790.5 kilo total, not only wins back-to-back -back IPF World Championships, not only puts the rest, the rivalry with Beckland, and, and puts the rest, Beckland walking around, having that win on him and him not having a revenge on it, also in that World Championships, wins the best lifter and becomes the premier lifter in the IPF. And that, my friends, is our first rivalry that I wanted to touch up on. I had posted in there, um, who I thought Taylor's number one rival up to this point was. And Taylor DM me and said, there's absolutely no question. He's like, I, you know, it's not, it's not so far. It's none of these young guys yet. That's not to say, and we could do a little look ahead at future rivalries. There couldn't be someone, but you need some wins back and forth, just like other sports have. That could happen in the second half of Taylor's career, 100%. But up until now, it's that one. And there's my first sports rivalry. Gentlemen, who wants to go next? I can't tell of the three who's uh, least impressed with your first rivalry. What the fuck? <laughs> it, not saying that the lifters are not good, but you picked the bare minimum of like, you know, they have to have at least met each other twice and they each have to have at least one uh, once. Listen, so love, you pick that because love, 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 love. <laughs> 
it's about the storyline in the in in the magnitude it's the world championships. You you that's you hyped, them in the greatest you, of all time. You you definitely hyped up the storyline for this ten minutes of talking about how Taylor lost to uh, I believe his name is Alexander from Belarus. Then Taylor lost to Shell. Then Taylor won against I believe Clinton Lee was the second best when uh, Shell didn't come. And then finally he got his win against Shell. So yeah, they went one and one. Uh, two times meeting each other. It is a rivalry. There were it wasn't much of a battle because Shell won the first time fairly easily. Taylor won the second time fairly easily. So I, I think there could be potential more going forward if if Shell continues to do classic and he uh, improves his total. I, I the ones I looked into though, I think uh, I, I look for right, more, more more times competing against each other. I don't know what the other guys okay, have thoughts on before we go to the next one. Well, I think it's your I, I turn. To... I think it's your turn then, Arian. If you got, if you got so much to say, let's hear it. Well, I mean, I, I guess since we're gonna we're gonna we'll start maybe lower lower level and work our way up to like what I think is the top rivalry. So lower level, I was looking at okay, let's look at just that USAPL nationals. Well, let's do, that? we're gonna go one for one, right? Yeah. So I'm I'm gonna throw one of my lower level ones out there okay. from from All right. from 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 USAPL raw nationals. I'll save my top one for the end. And so one of the more recent rivalries with more matchups would obviously be Jen Thompson versus Sam Calhoun in the 63s. So I, I listed the meets. So in 2016, uh, Jen won. And in 2017, Jen won. And then they end up both making our national team and going to Worlds in 2018. So in 2018, that's where it was the controversial where Jen won, but it was the whole, like, you know, the last deadlift. Do you go for the record? Do you go for the win? They, Sam did not go for the win. People are wondering who made the decision. So, like, there's a lot of controversy behind that. And now Jen is up three three uh, titles. But then in 2018, Raw Nationals, right afterwards, Sam comes back and beats Jen on body weight. So that was, like, you know, a battle to the very end, the final pull to tie on total, win on body weight. They both had over 500 kilo total. And then at 20. 19 nationals jen didn't show up because of injury so sam got a win another national title but jen wasn't there for it so we'll see what happens with the injuries of jen come back and maybe continue that rivalry but at least for those few years it was a good rivalry at the national level plus the controversy at worlds and then sam finally getting that win yeah that was one of my my uh, rivalries i had so let me expand on that and throw a little bit because you're 100 right they were as close as it gets now sam early on in her career had what looked like it was a developing rivalry with Chris and Dunsmore, um, literally besting her continuously by body weight. I mean, they were neck and neck when Dunsmore was a 63. Um, eventually, Dunsmore left to 72, became a national champion in her own right, fantastic lifter. But then Sam ended up having a new rival at the 63, none other than the 63-kilo goat herself, Jen Thompson. At the 2018 Worlds, um, Sam missed out. She was... Eight for nine, missing only her third squat and was three and a half kilo off from the gold. Now, this is what makes it, in terms of part of like history and powerlifting, very unique. She had the decision to make, do I go for, do I pull for the win? Because she's pulling last for anyone listening. So I can either pull for the gold medal and pull to be a world champion or if I think that's a little too much, too heavy, too big of an ask, I can pull for the world record deadlift and leave with a silver medal. I can't do both. And she chose, as fate would have it, the silver medal in the world record. Three and a half kilo off of being a world champion. That's very tough to digest. 
because the following world championships, she's over 10 kilo off the mark. And now, um, you know, when you look at Blia Babo, et cetera, in terms of the overall best totals put up a 63 kilo, it's a, it's a big ask. And that's tough. When you think of that three and a half kilo, she's never been closer. However, you can't, can't count Sam out. This is sports. Anything can happen in sports. You show up on the day of, I mean, you, we've seen it enough times. So that by no means, but this is what makes the U.S. Raw Nationals 2019 showdown between Sam, or sorry, 2018 Raw Nationals between Sam and Jen so important is that it's a rematch and it's a rematch against the reigning IPF world champion in a chance at a bit of a redo. And despite the fact that the world title's not on the line, there was some sting there. And there's nothing like a redemption story when you're talking about rivalries. She had lost to Jen three times in a row and the last one hurt. And her going nine for nine. And if you've seen that performance, every third lift, she had not a freaking, if a snowflake landed, I'm Canadian, I'm using these analogies. A snowflake landed on the bar, she wasn't going to get it. It was a beautiful performance, nine for nine. And um, Matt Gary had gotten the most out of her that time. And she defeated the reigning IPF world champion, 50.5 kilo total, Jen 50, or sorry, it's a 500.5 kilo total. Jen, the exact same, wins on body point or, or body weight, masterful performance in terms of game planning and handling, got everything out of her nine for nine and beat the reigning world champion. If there's any kind of redemption and any kind of solace there, it's right there. Wanted to add on to that because you're 100% right. That's, that's an amazing rivalry and it probably is on everybody's list, I'm assuming. That's why I wanted to go first before you guys, but I'm going to add on to it. Uh, Rory, you want to go next, sir? Uh, my first one on my list is uh, obviously Brenton and Russell. Um, like, again, I've, they've only gone one and one, uh, but there was Sheffield lined up for the beginning of last year, which was supposed to be in, I think it was the first weekend of March last year. And so, like, that was that was going to be the third one, and 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 a lot of people, including myself, were really looking forward to seeing that Um and, and there's also the potential for a round four and, and worlds later that year. Um, I, I do think that Russ had said that he probably wasn't going to go, um, but you know, there, there was the potential for a, for a fourth round there. And so um, Brett run one round one in 2018 in, in Calgary. Um, and that was the first time he totaled uh, 10 times body weight, which I think at the time he was the heaviest person to do that. And then uh, in, a, in, a, in a very tight battle in 2019, Russ won that. And that was like, Obviously, I think all, all of us were there for that. Um, and that was a, <laughs> uh, let's, let's not go over that one again. Um, but uh... well, for the listeners who don't, who, who don't know, my need reminding you guys were literally the coaches. You were in Brett's corner and Bill and Arian were in Russ's corner. Yeah, my, my, myself and Angus were in, in Brett's corner. And then uh, these, these two jokers with, with Russ. Yeah, <laughs> they got lucky, right? One slip by the goalie. It happens. It Definitely, definitely a solid rivalry. I, I didn't have it on my list because again, it was just the two two matchups. But like you said, the potential there with Sheffield and then Worlds going forward. Because while a lifter may not want to go to Worlds, like maybe they they don't want to go based on location. If you want to go to Sheffield, oftentimes you have to go to Worlds and you have to win. So we might see a lot more matchups. Like a, a little bit more than just going one for one, though. They like they've also traded the uh, world record total backwards and forwards a couple of times now. Their training numbers are very similar. Um, I know that you know part of a rivalry is not just like oh i've lost that person once or twice part of it is you know like waking up in the morning and you're like i got a chip on my shoulder i gotta 
I got to make sure that that doesn't happen again, you know? Um, and so like, like that is, that is part of it. And I think that was definitely part of that, that rivalry. A rivalry. We talked about it in the one me and Arian had a, a discussion with Bryce Lewis, a rivalry often in all sports, when the first person loses, they are forced to reevaluate and level up and then come back. And, um, and that happens in, in these cases that we talked about, but not only that, there was some history there because Russell is coached by Joey flex who previously was the coach of John hack in that majorly hype showdown with Brett. So there's some history there. So then when Joey flex shows up with another 83 kilo monster and Brett is like, Oh, here we go again in Calgary, 2018, it is, there's more than just a rivalry with the lifters. There's a little a sporting. Cause I know Brett and Joey, Joey are friendly too. And they go on each other's podcasts and whatnot, but you know, still you again. Okay. <laughs> you know, there's, there's some rivalry there overall in terms of teams as well. And then um, for Brett to put together that performance, the heaviest 10 times body weight performance we had ever seen up to that point. And I still remember Brett after that final deadlift, he was like, you know, when someone's putting together that masterpiece, you know, they go nine for nine, 10 times body weight, world championship. I mean, that's the trifecta. Oh, on top of that, put the bed, the Joey Flex, you know, rivalry right there. Like, okay, now I got one. All right. Uh, this time I got one back. And um, in terms of the big showdowns, because he had one with John Hack and it went the other way. If he had another majorly hyped showdown and my friends, it gets no bigger than Russell or he. So yes, the showdown was heavily hyped. If he loses again, people are going to start talking. He doesn't win the big one. If he loses again, people start talking when it comes to big sports, you choke when it comes, when it gets big like that. And, um, and he also had the demons of 2017 still there. So he really, this meant a lot to him. So when Brett put together a masterful performance like that, it made it all that much better. Uh, and I still remember the picture of him. He left, he left his feet. He's like six feet in the air, man. He would have dunked. My man is all of five, five. And he would have dunked on that day. Believe it. Plus the downside of our, our sport with the, uh, the drug testing is like, you know, he went up against, uh, was it Jose Castillo who then, uh, who then fails her drug test. So like this time when, at least when he won this time, like he was recognized for it in person there. It wasn't like after the fact, oh, this person failed their drug test. We'll bump you up a spot. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, I, I, if I'm honest, the Brett Gibbs, um, Russell or he rivalry, uh, which is still ongoing and not over. I was thinking about popping it in there, but I knew the coaches involved in this discussion. Like I'd be a total dick to take that one off the table from somebody. And uh, so it is what it is. Bill, what you got, my man. So with the raw, I'm struggling a little bit. Cause like, obviously it's only been around for about 10 years now, right. With the classic. So like the rivalries, you know, in my mind, they're always going to be like these longer drawn out back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, so I found a couple of like snippets here and there of like, you know, three year snippets of like, these guys were rivals for three years and then kind of went different ways kind of thing. So I was looking at um, Ray Williams and Blaine Sumner. Mm. Okay. So be between 2013 and 2015, they went to head to head a few times. Um, so uh, Blaine wins the first world cup in sweden the first raw world cup and then um you know he um is the uh defending national champ ray shows up in 2013 in florida for our nationals his first national meet and he wipes the floor with blaine just wipes the floor with him it was over by the first deadlift done 
Um, so now, you know, the new king is here, all this good stuff. So Blaine then later on that year goes to Australia to do a meet and then takes the um, world record total. It was one of like Wilkes's meets or whatever and takes the world record total. So then, you know, Ray comes back and he wins worlds and I think it was South Africa that year. Um, so then I believe he gets the world record total back. So it's kind of mm. going back and forth with the world record totals. So then we have uh, Colorado Nationals 2014. Uh, so this is basically right around where Blaine grew up kind of training in this area. So it's kind of like a hometown meet, meet for Blaine. And he is the first person and only person to ever actually beat Ray head to head. Oh, I mean, damn. He, he bombed out of the meet in Sweden, obviously. But other than that, he's won every single meet he's ever been in head to head. And Blaine beat him by like 65 kilos, like wiped the floor with him, wiped the floor with him big time. Um, and Ray obviously did not have a good meet. Blaine had a fantastic meet. So, um, you know, so now it's, you know, one, one basically. So then they um, go to Finland, right? Aaron Finland. Yep. Um, so now they're going head to head because Ray also makes the world team, the national team for the U S so it's Ray and Blaine going one, two back and forth and Arian is actually there handling Blaine at the time. So, you know, the way it works out, you know, they're going back and forth and Blaine has the chance to pull for the win. And the video is great because Arian's back there, skinny little young Arian, like, yeah. you know, not a care in the world at the time, yelling back and forth. <laughs> Play, I mean, games all day. Blaine gets this thing up over his knees and he damn near locks the thing out to, for the, you know, the epic, you know, final Hail Mary pull at the end. And just, you know, ends up dropping the thing. Um, so, yeah, and Ray ends up winning there in Finland, of course. Um, and that, that was kind of the fizzle out in the end of the rivalry there. But um, just that, you know, three-year period, they went back and forth trading world records. You know, again, one guy was the only one to ever beat the other guy yeah. kind of thing. And then, you know, obviously, you know, Ray goes off to be the greatest, you know, super heavyweight classic lifter ever. And Blaine goes off to be the greatest equipped, you know, uh, heavyweight ever so it kind of was really really cool to see them both in their younger years going head to head and then kind of split off and become the you know the pinnacles of the the heavyweight sport that we have so it's pretty cool dude i love it no that that is a that's a freaking nice back and forth rivalry not only on the platform did each guy best the other but then as they went their separate ways in different meets they're they're swapping the record back and forth so they can't right. even i love it when it's like when I hit the platform and I see you, one day I might beat you, the other day you might beat me. Then when I leave, I still can't escape you. It's your record I'm going after. And then I take your record and then you still can't escape me because when you're lifting somewhere, you're going to beat my record. And then we, we reconvene all over again at the world championships. That's it, man. And that's probably to an extent that's lost to history. I mean, we are talking 2000, the Raw Cup is 2013. For anyone listening, IPF, when they first went to the 2011, right? 13 for the IPF. For uh, sure. No, for I sure. don't know why I was sticking 12. 13 was, 13 was South Africa. Right on that. 14. Pull it up. Someone pull it up. I guarantee you. 14, 14, 14 is South Africa because I was there. 13 was, 13 was Russia. 12 was Sweden was the cup. Oh, sorry. 12. Yeah, sorry. My bad. Are you sure? We're both wrong. Yeah, 2012 was considered a classic cup. They didn't consider an official world championship. 2013 was like the first classic world championship in uh, Suzdal, Russia, in the summer with no AC in the hotels. Is that right? Let me pull this up, sir. Uh, Suzdal is lovely that time of year. 
apparently apparently they had like a 60 or or 90 minute bus ride in the summer with no ac and that's when uh bill when mike hedleski hamburger train was on the team he got gold medal in the deadlift and uh he's probably like the only ipf lifter that does west side training and is actually like you know a top level lifter dude he's on the podium podium with his shorts and his vans on right (laughs) i don't want to derail this but there is very few top end elite power lifters who do west side and it's freaking uh Anyways. That's another podcast for another but, time. That's another yeah, podcast for. Another but 2012 time. Sweden was a classic cup. All Alico stuff was a test run. They only did the open division, and then 2013 is like the official world. World's. So it depends on which one you consider. But I do consider the World Cup a World Championship for Blaine's sake, and for those people who won that, I do consider it one. I mean, it's tough to like. Well, you're not actually a world champion. I don't know. Again, another another uh, another day. So I'm going to go again now. Um, I'm going to bring us to 2017. I'll take us to the, we're back in Belarus and it's the battle of the one Oh fives and the Belarus battle of the one Oh fives had a lot of monsters in it. Um, including some characters like screamer Manuel, but among those at the very top was America's own Bryce Lewis and battling Christoph Versbecki who as a 93 was extremely dominant. Um, he, he had won a three or four. I think we had talked about this before in terms of when we were talking about those who had a, a running dynasty in powerlifting, but he had moved up to the 105 and looked like an absolute monster. Now in 2017, Christoph Versbecki absolutely looks unbeatable, goes eight for eight going into his final deadlift. Uh, in which he attempts a 400 kilo in his final and misses, but he doesn't need it because he's so far ahead. Uh, Bryce Lewis ends up with an 870 total and Bryce ends up with an 885. Blevins of US also gets a bronze. He's there and he gets an 862.5. Now, after this performance, I remember Blevins saying on the podcast, when we're talking about 2018, Christoph looked so good in 2017 world championships. Is anybody even excited for this? What's the excitement level? What's the temperature of the room? Or does he just look that unbeatable? Take it to Calgary 2018. And all of a sudden versus Becky looks human. And he's done this a couple times in his career. And he's, you know, whether it's through injury or just bad timing, getting sick or whatever it is. And all of a sudden he's human again. And we're, Versbecki falters and has for him a dismal eight for nine day and having an 862.5 kilo total. Uh, Bryce has the lifting day of his life, goes eight for eight, almost in, in a, a mirror of what Versbecki did. He goes eight for eight himself, leading to his final deadlift, has it sewed up, misses his last, but doesn't need it, and clinches the world championship. And, um, and essentially that's all she wrote in terms of, uh, let me find my notes here. I think it's, uh, Becky only went like five for nine that day. He, yeah. Five, he, five he for nine. That's right. Wait, made one squat and one deadlift. 365 opener deadlift and, and just couldn't, I mean, he, he had a, a, a terrible day versus Becky takes it. Um, and then Blevins who to an extent was a rival as well for Lewis in the domestic front threatened. And he also at one point had the one Oh five world record total 
but comes in as silver medalist and he was always in the hunt as well. So the battle of the one Oh fives Canada zone was in there and that was a heavily hyped battle. So for me though, the rivalry there was between Bryce Lewis and Christopher's Becky. And this is where I would tell, you know, almost anybody when we're talking about like the Sam Calhouns and this is where I'm throwing it back. It doesn't necessarily matter how dominant someone looks on one given performance even if it's a win over the other individual, how dominant they look in training and everyone else around you is like, should we even show up? Even fellow co competitors are like, what's the temperature in the room here? Are we already putting the metal around this other person's neck? If you show up and you don't miss your lifts, you're always in the hunt if you're world-class. And Sam Calhoun is still there. I mean, she's still young and in her prime. So just to throw back there, but there's one of the rivalries. Who wants so, to go? Oh, wait, did you guys, uh, were you guys handling in that one? Rory, what were you going to say? I was going to say one thing that probably gets overlooked a little bit with those those rivalries is that like often the world championships ends up being held in Europe because there's a lot of lot of countries there who do a lot of powerlifting. And so like historically, whereas Becky hasn't really had to travel that far to get to international meets, you know, he's flying to Sweden, he's flying from Poland. How far is that? Like, like a three hour flight maybe? Um, whereas suddenly you you flip it and put put the world championships in Calgary, North America, um, and you don't you don't have a three hour flight anymore. You probably have like an eight hour flight followed by another six hour flight, which is typically how the American lifters are uh, what they have to go through to get to a European meet. And so suddenly now, where's Becky? Is the one in a foreign country speaking foreign language, having traveled fourteen hours plus layovers plus uh, you know adjusting to the new sleep schedule? Um, Calgary is one of those is like super dry and so like the, the atmosphere feels really different to what you might be used to um so like that all of that stuff plays into your performance on that day and if you're not you're not ready for that it's it's like a totally different beast you know i ran into versus becky i i hopped in the back and i talked to him and like a, a couple of the fellas and he had mentioned how that flight and the time difference completely wiped him and he was not used to it to the point you're making and um 875.5 actually was Bryce's total from 2018 but yeah it is it is a factor man it is 100 like the time zone change to travel itself everything adds up if, if someone hasn't had to do that for a world championships and people are like oh what's the difference gravity's gravity all over the world try it imagine from being a far away being from a faraway country like uh, i don't know new zealand <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brett doesn't want to hear it. You know, every single year he's he's in the thick of things. And and these for, Americans are in there and they're like, oh, I flew eight hours and then two hours, and I'm like, I flew twelve hours and then twelve hours and then four more hours. Yeah. So uh, I was going to mention for Verzbicki too. He's still fairly young, and it seems like he does a lot of stuff on his own. Like he doesn't have his own personal coach, and they don't come with him often. And Bill probably knows his best is. One time he came and did a, the Arnold uh, Sports Festival. He did the deadlift only competition. And I believe he had paid Matt Gary to handle him and like gave him his like attempts. And like, I guess he put like a deadlift suit on for the first time. And they kind of just like, you know, through like whatever way they could translate, they kind of like figured it out. Like, like, oh my God. He just, he just came by himself and just said, yeah. Matt, will, will you handle me? Yeah, I don't think his wife came with him. It was just him by himself. His wife's a lifter too. But so uh, not not only move, not only flying all the way to to Canada, but also like you know maybe not having anyone helping him with like how to deal with travel and and the water cut and you know the language and all that kinds of stuff like that. You just show up and the team coach is there and you you figure something out. Yeah, no, his his English is extremely limited as well. Uh, trying to talk to him, he's like motioning with his hands that he's tired. 
um, by doing this and mm-hmm. saying and pointing to like where his watch would be saying the time zone difference and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I think for, for Bryce versus for Vicky, it might still be, you know, like unfinished business and same thing with Gibbs versus Russ. There, there might be more derivatory. The next one I'll mention, I'll, I'll stick with the national level is this one's pretty much a finished rivalry, but again, it's another good story. Like same thing with Sam and, and Jen was uh, for our national level is Susie Hartwick Gary versus Marissa Enda. Mm. So, so the first three years, 2012, 13, and 14, Susie beat Marissa every time. And 2012 was Marissa's first raw nationals. She bombed out on squat. I think she came in like, you know, running shoes is her first national. She doesn't know what she's doing. And so she bombs out on squat. And I think Matt Gary even like gave her some tips like, hey, go, go buy squat shoes and stuff like that. Like get serious about the lifting. And then I think it was 2014, maybe, they lose, she loses by like two and a half kilos. I wasn't there at 2014 in Colorado, but it might've been like an issue. Like they didn't put the change in for the yeah. third deadlift in so, time. So literally, literally all she had to do is change the third deadlift. She would have pulled it in one. And whoever was coaching her at the time, I'm not sure who it was to be honest with you, but they never changed her attempt. So they had, all they had to do was bump it up two and a half and she pulls it easy because her third attempt was not hard. And they just put the wrong, they, they never changed the attempt and so, she pulled and it was two and a half less than she needed. And oh, she yeah. so yeah. it's like, it, it's like yeah. the, the changing of the guard. Cause like, you know, Susie's like, you know, this multi-time national world champion, raw and equipped coach by Matt and everything like that. And then Marissa's like brand new. She's coming to her national. She doesn't know what she's doing. She bombs out in 2012. They have an attempt change mistake in 2014. And then she makes the switch around then, I believe, somewhere around then with uh, Juggernaut and Chad Wesley Smith. And so now Marissa finally changed the guard. She's won 2015, 2016, and 2017. Susie didn't do the open in 2018 and 2019, so I didn't include that. But it's just like, you know, Susie wins the first three, and now Marissa's won the next three. Nice. That's a, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good pick for rivals. And um, yeah, especially uh, that story in the middle where, like, you know, it should have kind of happened a year earlier but didn't because of, you know, the, the wrong attempt selection basically at the end. And so it kind of, it kind of gives it a little more spice. Like, okay, now we kind of know it's coming, but is it really coming kind of thing? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. Fair enough. You would never let that go, right? Like you would remember pulling the wrong number just un- until you beat that person. <laughs> oh, you better right. it. Who wants to go next? Who, who went after Aaron? Rory's up. Rory, okay. Yep. I've got one from, from the archives. Um, so I was thinking about this uh, a little bit yesterday and I actually um, messaged Mike to share and I was like, Hey Mike, have you got any like uh, rivalries from back in the day? And he immediately replies back um, himself, Mike, Mike to share versus Alexander Sheppel. Um, and so I, I, I looked, looked that one up and they've only gone head to head twice, um, but it was quite a big one. And so in 2008, um, Sheppel wins and on the final deadlift. Um, so Mike, uh, I, I think he had, 365 already and he needed 377 to win so he loads it up for the final deadlift can't do it come second um however both of them make an appearance again in 2009 at the world games and so uh the reason i think that this is a big one is like coming back in the world games you know this is the biggest stage in powerlifting like yeah. assuming we never get to the olympics um like it doesn't get bigger than the world games and so it's mike to versus alexander Sheppel again in the uh, super heavyweight class um the weight class is a little bit different for the world games and again it comes down to the final deadlift and so mike is actually in the lead coming out of the final deadlift and it's alexander Sheppel who loads the final deadlift to win and can't do it leaving mike to as the world games champion wow um, so man. it was only only two and it was only over two years but it was like two big ones and both of them came right down to the last lift I love it when it's like a total role reversal. 
And you're like, wow, this is almost like written right out of a movie. And um, obviously Mike goes on to be a legend uh, coach and a lot of people, man, that's why I love we're doing this because a lot of people don't even know some of the battles he had and fought. Bill, what do you got for us? Kind, sir. All right, so this one's a pretty interesting one. Um, so Priscilla Ribic against Anna Rosa Castellane in the equipped division. Mm. These two went back and forth. I don't have the exact stats in front of you. I was kind of looking it up because they went the head to head a ton. Um, but they, you know, it spans probably over eight or nine years where they basically went one, two, one, two, three kind of thing at world championships, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Priscilla's always had the bigger deadlift than Anna. So she's always the one pulling last for the win. So basically if she made her deadlift, she won. If she didn't, Anna won kind of thing. And literally like you can go back and they're just, you know, one and two, one and two. And the same thing. I mean, it was spanned over two different world games. So Anna actually Holy won shit. both won both the world games or uh, Priscilla got second in both the world games. Um, and it's just, it's just, yeah, I mean, it, it went on for such a long time. And, you know, one from being Brazil, one from being U.S., like it just kind of worked really, really cool that way. And it was a really good weight class. I mean, I guess it was the 75 or 67 and a half at that point and then moved to the 72s eventually. Um, but, yeah, even, you know, the last they competed again, like four years ago, whatever it was, they were still both, you know, top one and two kind of deal. Um, so I think that's one of the longest rivalries um, I could think of off the top of my head, at least. And I did a little, you know, it was, it was really, really, really cool to see. Cause again, you knew what was going to happen. It was one of the, it's like watching like an NBA game, right? Like, you know, kind of where you're going to be going into the last two minutes. And it just depends on who plays a little harder. Right. <laughs> so the same thing here, where it's just like, you know, Priscilla's going to try to pull for the win. It's just, can she do it kind of deal, you know? Mm. And I mean, there were some meets where she missed her first two squats and made her, you know, made her opener on her third and then came back and hit all three deadlifts and wins the world championship. It, it just, it just, it's been a crazy ride with the two of them. So it was really, really cool. That's a, that's a really, really good rivalry. What you got, Arian? I have the stats cause you stole my number one. This is definitely the best rivalry yeah, sure, and right? powerlifting yeah. ever. So I have the stats. So I'll go over real quick and jump yeah. in. So, <laughs> so 2011 worlds, uh, Priscilla beats Anna. That's the first time they met. And then in 2012 Worlds, Anna comes back and beats Priscilla. And then they go to, yeah, 2013 World Games, which, you know, combines weight classes, does it by body weight. And Anna beats Priscilla there on, on the points. So she wins the, the 2013 World Games. Now she kind of has like, you know, two in a row. Oftentimes in the same year's World Games, sometimes the lifters don't do Worlds because it's a quick turnaround. So they didn't meet up at 2013 Worlds. The next time they met up was 2014 Worlds. Priscilla beats Anna. Then in 2015 Worlds, Priscilla beats Anna, but that's one of the stories, like, you know, Bill mentions it happens oftentimes or sometimes with people with sumo, if you open up too light, you kind of like lose your balance. So there's a couple of times where she's lost her balance. So at that 2015 worlds, Priscilla loses her balance on her opening deadlift. She retakes it on her second. And then she takes a 25 kilo jump from her second attempt to her third attempt to Holy pull shit. for the win. And she pulls for the win. And so she beats Anna in 2015. Then in 2016 worlds, Anna comes back and beats Priscilla. And then at 2017 World Games, again, on going on body weight, Anna beats Priscilla on the body weight. I don't remember if they actually totaled exactly the same or not, but Anna won on, on, on body weight. So if you count world championships, you know, Priscilla has one, two, three, and Anna has two. But then when you take the two world games, Anna has right. the two world games, which is typically seen as like the most more prestigious one. So that's like a really great back and forth. And plus, like, yeah, that, that taking a 25 kilo jump and pulling for the win. It is that's pretty crazy. 
That's one of those deals where you show up at the competition, you're like, you again. Here we go. My old friend. Like you, you would have so many to, by the time it's all said and done, you might start off kind of bitter rivals. Then you'd be by the end, you're kind of friendly and like, all right, we've known each other for close to a decade at this point, you know. So I don't know, it'd be kind of weird. It, 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 I mean, yeah, there's more more to it in person too. Like in 2016 Worlds, I believe it was, if I'm not mistaken, was in Orlando and I was there helping and stuff like that. And the coach for for Brazil, for Anna, was was very hyped. He was like, you know, he knew Anna was on her game. You know, the numbers were good and he was going to win. And so when she was making attempts and stuff like that, he came by one time after her attempts. He's like, this is our time now, like yelling out loud and like right by the jury and stuff. Like he was all pumped for this rival. Like, oh, we're going to come. We're going to beat our Worlds now. Um, and there was a little bit of, you know, social media, uh, back and forth, uh, <laughs> uh, arguing or whatever that <laughs> what? really, okay. What year was this? Because what year was this happening around? This was this, this is toward the end towards 2016 going into 2017 when Brazil was going to Russia to get special training. And some of the people were wondering what kind of special training they're getting over there. So no some things shit. may have been said, IPF may have had to get involved. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow i didn't hear about that about the yeah, i was gonna leave that part out but since you brought it up uh... <laughs> they I'm, I'm pretty sure if i if i'm not mistaken i'm pretty sure at one of the i uh, one of the ipf worlds or something like that or maybe even the napf where gaston was there they didn't bring up any names but the, the, the general information they brought up at the like meeting and saying like this is not the way you should be acting lifters within the ipf and stuff like that like we have whatever this drug testing and this and that so like that that rivalry is getting a little bit heated towards the end holy shit dude this rivalry hits on all levels yep wow no you know what <laughs> uh, this in terms of um longevity in terms of competitiveness in terms of the stakes involved in terms of it getting heated in terms of i've never seen gaston or heard of gaston having to get involved and make words about it this absolutely would be the number one rivalry I've ever heard about in powerlifting. And it's on the equip side. So it's not, it's a little out of my sandbox and um, I don't want to have prefer- but, peripheral knowledge until now. But, but like Bill said, those, those have been around longer. So like this went from 2011 to 2017 and in between them, since uh, Priscilla did become a, a master's lifter, she did do some master's worlds where she can, you know, break the, the open deadlift or the open total, but she obviously wasn't going head to head against Anna. She can win master's world pretty easy and, and, you know, shoot big, but yeah, those were those head to head open worlds and world games. Like, you know, the top competitions during those years. Oh, damn. Who's, who's got next? You're up brother. You're up me. Let's take a look at what I got. Fuck. That's a tough one to follow. <laughs> I cannot lie to you, man. That's a very difficult one to follow. All right. Here's one that started off pretty hot. Um, and then it ended up being a rematch, but uh, the rematch didn't live up, but nonetheless, it's a rivalry that, Neither person in it's American, and I'm trying to get a little bit worldly, okay? So this is Christoph Verzbecki against Ukraine's Mikhailo Bolani from the 2014 World Championships. Now, how close was the 2014 World Championships, you might ask me? How often does a gentleman leave as the reigning world record holder in the weight class and the other gentleman is the reigning world champion. That's fucking close. 
that is, you know, when they say in boxing, the undisputed heavyweight champion, that's a disputed champion, my friend. That's when somebody else is saying, you beat me, but you didn't out-total me. As a matter of fact, I am the reigning world record holder. The other guy says, my friend, I didn't out-total you, but I beat you. Body weight, long story. I am the reigning world champion. Very close by both gentlemen. Um, they both ended up with a 847.5 kilo total in 2014. And um, Chris Becky, where's Becky? Sorry, I'm going to have problems saying his last name, but to tie it up in total, but to take the win on body weight, had a big jump. He pulled 372.5 kilo dead. And he ended up going nine for nine. If he was to hit this, he ended up hitting it, obviously. He went nine for nine, where Bulani hit was seven for nine. Missed a couple lifts along the way. So it left the intangible. You both ended up with the exact same. One individual was missing lifts, whereas Christophers Becky hit his final dead. And when he hit it, he dropped to his knees and was ecstatic to this day. I remember him walking out there and he was all types of fired up when he hit that deadlift dropped to his knees. He's like, Oh my God, I can't believe I pulled this off at the time. It was a huge deadlift for himself. This is Mr. Deadlift. He's 15 years younger than Bulani. So most people would have figured, well, that's probably the end of the Ukrainians hopes. If he's going to win a title in, in the raw, I know we lifted equipped as well. 2016 rolls around. We're going to the U S now, my man, Christoph, is damn near unbeatable in Europe, it looks like. But he has some problems when he cr crosses the pond and comes to North America. So in Killeen, Texas, 2016, Christoph is clearly injured. Something happened. I'm not sure when. I'd seen him. That was my first year commentating at Worlds, and he was walking fine when he first got there. But I, I, I don't know if it's the day of or day before he just walking looked like he was in pain. Something happened to him in terms of an injury and the Titanic battle that everybody couldn't wait for the rematch for somewhat fizzled out. And Christopher's Becky fell into fourth place, but Bujani definitely lived up. And here's where you got to be careful because Jezuweppa had this situation in Sweden where, okay, your chief rival that you've been, you showed up for and ready for when they don't show up like you did, but everyone else also rises the occasion because the sharks smell blood and like, this is my chance to win gold. Um, not that, and I don't want to take anything away from Bujani because he's probably saying, my friend, I didn't exactly need a miracle to strike in this guy to be hurt for me to win. He, is, he did not out-total me last time we met. He won on body weight. So let's not pretend that my win in 2016 was, uh, was a blessing out of a fluke or anything. But Bujani go gets an 840 kilo total and wins it. And right now the gentlemen are one on one. But Bujani, obviously being 15 years older, I'm thinking this is where the rivalry ends. And this is one case where we got a taste for an amazing showdown. It lived up, was extremely close. A rematch set. Both guys show world title at stake. And unfortunately, we didn't get what we wanted. And that's damned if that isn't sports but they are one and one fellas who wants to go do you guys remember you guys were there right i, I was there in 2014 i was just gonna say for anyone yeah, tell me who, about it. anyone who was there remembers if not go watch the video is 
Christoph's last deadlift was like a little bit question on lockout. Everyone watches that video and says, oh, was he really fully locked out with the shoulders back? Or did he get like, you know, a quick com down command? And it's always tough for those people that are like really well built for deadlift because your lockout is like so low on your legs and it's like hard to get the shoulders back and stuff like that. But yeah, people can go watch that video. It's like, yeah, came down to the final deadlift. He took that huge jump. It was like questionable lockout. He gets the whites. He goes crazy and everything like that. Uh, and, and yeah, and then you always wonder for Buyani because if you go watch his squats, like he broke the world record squat before Lane Orange even said it and it went up easy, but you never know. Some people are, you know, fast squatters and you put up like, you know, five kilos and all of a sudden they just don't come out of the hole. But like you question like, oh, was he going easy? Cause you know, he's a master's lifter. Maybe he thought he like, that's all he needed. He broke the world record, but maybe if he had pushed it more then he would have gotten that win as well. Well, it is. And that's why when he shows up in 2016 and versus Becky, essentially is pretty badly injured it shouldn't be like a question mark or any kind of notation on that win because versus becky was badly injured and came in fourth because a lot of people would say look buliani at his best might have always been better than what christoph could have brought as well i mean i'm not familiar with his equipped but has he not won as an equipped lifter uh i'd have to pull it up i know I'm, he was good I'm, at I'm not, I know he was primarily because he's, he's from 75. He's an older cat and he's primarily coming from the equip world, which I did not follow that. Yeah. It looks like he's won 09, 10, 12, 13. Oh, yeah. Wow. So he's, he's a dominant champion in his own right in the equip comes out of equipped and he's like, let's see what these raw cats are all about. And, um, yeah, nothing like a rivalry with a little bit of controversy, but all look at all is well that ends well. If he, if some people thought he got ripped off in 2014, my man came back and took 2016 and it just makes my story better. So thank you. Who's yeah. got next? That, that's question, his last question. time. Go ahead. I was just going to say that was his last IPF me listed on open IPF. So that's a good way to go out. Did he retire? <laughs> He's like, that's, that's it. I'm done. It's, it doesn't get better than that. I, I'm, I'm ready. Has that rule been changed about the totals? Or world records? Do um, we know? I'm I'm not sure. I know at the time that that was the case. I can't, it has it. Does someone know with, because I know Amanda and Danny obviously tied in Sweden, right? Danny got the, got the total first. Amanda pulled I'll pull up the results. I'll pull up but, the but, results. But, but Amanda has the world record. That's why I was just wondering if they changed it. Oh, I'm yeah. assuming they changed it. Okay. I guess they must've. I, I don't remember the exact scenarios off the top of my head for each level, because I believe it was also an issue where, Either the IPF changed it or the IPF and USAPL were different because Sam Calhoun asked the same thing when her and Jen both totaled 500.5 right. and Sam won. Well, who gets the record? Because in IPF, it's like this. So I don't remember which way they changed uh, which uh, federation. Yeah, no big deal. Like some... I was just wondering if you guys knew off your head. No big deal. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I know on the uh, record sheet, you 100% bill. So for Bujani's win, it just has the W for world record next to his total. But you're right in terms of 2000. 19 um three years later it's beside both ladies names meaning it was broken then broken again so i think you're right somewhere along the lines there must have been a rule change which makes sense i i don't know how, how do you guys feel about that we don't have to dwell on it but how do you rory what do you think you're nodding your head you don't like it I, the, the, the rules are pretty clear right the rules are that the first person who gets the total gets the record um and the person who has the highest total and the lowest body weight if there's the same gets gets the win and so like it's pretty clear that in 2019 danny should have had the had the world record and i remember at the time it was really controversial that the the world record actually was credited on the ipf website 
um, not to Danny. Um, so I, as far as I remember, the rules actually haven't changed. And like, I, I'm running a referee clinic Ooh. tomorrow and I've been like flicking back through the rules and making oh. sure I, I, I remember my shit going into it. Um, yeah, and like, so it, as far as I can tell, the rules are actually still the same and it was just not done well. It, it could be, yeah, just like the, the scoring manager at the meet didn't remember it. Cause like, you know, the stuff is so confusing of how you give out the individual medals and then how you give out the world record and how you give out the world, the world overall total. But I'm seeing here, it does say an IPF rule book. The record holder is a lifter who makes the record total first, which makes sense. Cause you set the record. Now everyone else has to break that record. If That's you want to beat it, you have the last deadlift go heavier. Like <laughs> that, if you, if, that's what that's how it works that's what a record only signifies it's not a game in terms of back and forth who gets it last who gets the last lap it is literally a record is the first person to do this milestone and you can't if i do this milestone and then rory comes afterwards and also does the exact same you didn't it's not a milestone it's not a milestone exactly i have to go past it right it's like my brother that's not what a record means um, that's why I, I, I'm heavily leaning towards, yes, you, and look at, I'm saying if it's half a kilo, even then, if you're like, look at, I don't give a shit. I want the world championship. Fine. Don't leave. Don't put on the half kilo on the dead to take both, but recognize you're not taking both. And I think most people would, but yeah, that is kind of weird and bizarre. I, and if it is only a clerical error, which can happen, uh, that's somebody put the world record under both names and then it went into the data books as Lawrence Mello should, or someone in Mello's camp should be like, Hey, now, uh, how did that work? Because we took the record and the record was never bested. It's also possible that it's a software error, right? Like the things that we're talking about as an absolute corner case. And as all of the software people uh, listening to this will know, all software has bugs in it, particularly when yeah. you get into like real corner cases. So like, it's possible that the software just said, Hey, Lawrence got the record and someone went, Oh, okay. And copied that across. Right. Um, right. Even, even if it wasn't necessarily correct. But dog, it's gotta be corrected by now. Uh, somebody, this is two years later on, we're going on close to two years and nobody's lifted their hand and said, Hey, that, that never that's happened. What, <laughs> that's why I'm wondering if that little sentence I mentioned was added after this event was based on that situation gaston said no that's not how it should be even though it says the the medals and then the uh the total are based on body weight and the world they did the world record based on body weight that it shouldn't be that way and they made the switch i don't know and just to the technical rules require an ipf general congress right like the president of the ipf can't unilaterally change the rule book that's what i mean you you live close next to rara wilkes and you're sounding quite a bit like him (laughs) Nah, dog, Robert, Robert, that, that would be the opposite. Isn't Robert Wilkes a dictator in that fed? No, Robert Wilkes doesn't like, didn't like it that we, uh, IPF just changed the rules every year, even though the, uh, the bylaws say we can't change the rules every year. Well, either way, um, we're, we're somewhat getting into another rivalry. And I've already, I, I've already. That's on my list too, if you want to. Know. No, it is. <laughs> it is. Should, we, should we dive into that one or should we put another one in first who goes next by the way because arian's up arian go ahead buddy all right well bill stole my top one but i have a couple more for equipped i'll take another lower equipped one is uh just like uh bill said blaine versus ray was a rivalry for the raw for the equipped i would say andre Kanavala versus blaine sumner was a, a big rivalry on the equipped side so as far as the the stats in 2012 worlds Kanavala beats blaine in 2015 Worlds, Kanavala beats Blaine. In 2016 Worlds, 
Konovalov is not there and Blaine wins. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that 2016 was a time where Russia had some sanctions against them for anti-doping issues. And so they're only being able to send two men per team on the open. So I believe they sent in Fedosienko and Inzarkin, so Konovalov didn't get to go. So Blaine won, but Konovalov wasn't there to defend Mm. it. Maybe some smack talk in there too. Then in 2018 Worlds, Konovalov comes back and he beats Blaine again. So Blaine's only one now without kind of all there. And then finally at 2019 Worlds was the, the last time they met. Uh, Blaine beats kind of all of head to head. And within that was all like the smack talking back and forth that people saw as like kind of all of after wins would put up YouTube videos saying like, oh, the Blaine's technique is bad. He leans over too much in a squat, this and that. And then he'd also put up videos of them talking about how like they tricked on, on attempt selection and he like kind of all would purposely put his delta attempts up to make Blaine go up too, and they both miss, and Konovalov would win. And I believe the the YouTube guy, Dmitry Spiridonov, I don't know how to pronounce his name, had Blaine on, had Blaine on to like you know do a like a nice interview, but then Blaine thinks maybe it was kind of like you know used against him, and and then uh, it wasn't as nice as he thought it was going in. So a little bit of smack talking back and forth there, and and Blaine got the win without Konovalov, and Blaine finally got the win with Konovalov there. Blaine was on the podcast, and he said. It got so bad with the trash talk um, and, and kind of all of was on podcasts that are mainly done in Russian, but he would get like transcripted what he was saying. Tons of trash talk. Blaine was actually writing down what he was saying on, on a chalkboard when he's training and staring. He would go over it daily, he said, in prep for this. And he's like, yeah, he's got a, he's got a pin board up and he has his, his wall of hate is a wall of hate. I think he calls it. That's or? right. Yeah. And yeah. he's like, I wanted this showdown, that final meeting. He's like, you have no idea what it meant to me. Um, <laughs> I actually yeah. took a piece uh, of that and it's on the Instagram IG for KOTL. He talks about it in great detail. Yeah. It was a hell of a rivalry. Yeah. So and just I'm saying like getting up in the morning with a chip on your shoulder, right? Like you wake up in the morning and you're like, right, what do I got to do? So that next time I come head to head with this guy, like I walk away with the W. Yeah. Yeah. It was like all, all the smack talking online because the, you know, Carnival always had a way to, to reason it. Like he would say how, oh, at, NA, at the NAPF Arnold Sports Festival, you know, the U.S. referees and Canada referees and stuff like give gifts to Blaine. He puts up the world record total. Then he comes to Worlds and he can't hit the same numbers because he has the European referees there. So it was always like a little jabs at him. Oh, you won Worlds when I wasn't there. Oh, you hit the world record total at like, you know, Arnold Sports Festival, not at Worlds or anything like that. Oh, your, your technique is trash and all stuff like that. And yeah, you know, anyone who follows Blaine knows he has that wall of hate. He won't show what's on there, but I'm pretty sure there's a number of kind of all things on there. <laughs> I, I, I think there's a couple area in and, and then um, we'll, we'll see, we'll see how they do going forward. But I've heard from some people, you know, Blaine's been racking up a couple injuries here and there. Um, so we'll see if he can get to like his top level, make it back to worlds or if that rivalry kind of dies out. Kind of I like the one of the coming to the raw too. Is he? Yeah. I'm, I'm the, so I, so I've been learning Russian. So I've been watching a lot of Russian interviews. <laughs> oh my God. We got a mole. Russian powerlifting interviews. So yeah. So he's, um, he did the, the Russian nationals raw also, and he's preparing to do Belarus. Holy smokes. My friend. Amazing. Um, do you know what his total is raw? Is, is that. He, he didn't do a, a very big total. It's, uh, yeah, but that could be misleading. Yeah. So you get to show up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was just, no, he was just, just did enough to like, you know, qualify for the team or whatever it is. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. See what he yes. has listed. He has a, uh, in 2019, a 900 kilo total and in uh, 2020, a 940 kilo total. Yeah. 
who knows when he shows up. According according to Belkin, he can't win. But um, according to Kanovalov, he can just throw on his throw on the uh, knee sleeves, and within two months, he'll be at top form for the world championship. So we'll see. Wow. You know what? I mean, listen, if you like sports rivalries and you like a little trash talk, this guy sounds like he brings it. Yeah. I mean, if he joins it, if he jumps <laughs> in there, whoa, I'm in. I like the one of the things that was salty about was like putting in high deadlift numbers and forcing the other person to also put high deadlift numbers and then both miss it. Like that's not, that's not tricking. Like that's, that's just how powerlifting works. Like, that's, <laughs> if, like if you want to win, like, yeah, sure. I'm like, we're both going to put in numbers that neither of us can hit. And then the person who is currently winning after the second deadlift walks away with the win. Like that's right. and you either play that game or, or don't, but, but it's not even like the, it's not the actual like strategy of it happening at the meet. It's that after the fact, he makes the the video and just yep. makes fun of them, like trash talking, like, hi, I got you in this trick. Well, here's the thing is you might, um, I mean, you, you might know how heated the other person is. So when you're putting in certain numbers, you're like, this guy's all hot and heavy and he wants to dead me and he doesn't want to give an inch. He doesn't want to give an inch to me. And, um, I'm not, I don't think either one of us are going to hit this, but let's fucking, let's, let's pretend I'm right there with you, bud. I'm not giving an inch to you either, but he's like, I'm, I'll give you the last, whatever. I don't care. I don't know. Whatever it is, what it is. Um, Rory, are you next? I am. I've got, I've got one last one, which is okay. another one with Mar- Marissa Renda in it, actually. So as far as I can tell, they've gone head to head three times and, and the uh, rivalry sort of fizzled a little bit after. Who's the, who the other one? Joy. You, he did say it okay sorry no 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 no. i'm i was oh, gonna sorry. get to that um oh, sorry 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 she took the, mine uh, go ahead my bad the uh the the rivalry fizzled a little bit with the world powerlifting split because the other person was liz craven who is now of course oh. world powerlifting, though some rumors that, that that may not be for the foreseeable future and so the first time they met was in uh south africa in 2014 uh where marissa ender got fifth uh and i think she got like a 352 total or something um and liz craven came sixth and so that was the, the first time that they met and and marissa ender won that one i mean she came fifth um she she beat liz craven for that one but then they had a rematch not in 2000 and, uh, sorry that was 2014 I, I don't think marissa ender made worlds in 2015 i'm not sure why um, but 2015 was the next time that they met um, and there, Liz Craven came third and Marissa Ender came fifth. And so there's only 10 kilos difference in their total there. Um, so although they, w- they weren't sort of butted up against each other, they were definitely both in contention. Um, and Marissa Ender has this habit of missing a lot of squats on depth. And I think on that day, if she had missed fewer squats on depth, that probably would have gone a little bit differently. Um, and then they had one last one, which was, I think, Belarus 2017 uh, Sorry, I've lost the, I've got the numbers here and I've just lost it. Uh, Belarus 2017, uh, where Marissa Ender actually won overall and Liz Craven came came in second on that day. And on that day, it was uh, Liz Craven had 413.5 and Marissa Ender had... Oh, 420. Was it 420? 420. So yeah, seven kilos, six and a half kilos in it um, on that day. And I, I believe they're actually like reasonably good friends, um, but you know... Three meets over four years, two wins, one win, back and forward. Um, and I imagine that that would have kept going if um, if the whole world powerlifting thing hadn't happened. Who knows? Maybe we'll see it spark up again. Do you do you mind if I snowball on this one, Bill, for one sec? If I add 
uh, a rivalry on this one to go first. No, go ahead. You're going to have joy into that. Cause yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was about <laughs> to, cause um, I know you got like 17 anyway, so we could, I think you're going to run for a little while afterwards, but um, I, we're almost chronological. We're almost giving like the whole biopic of Marissa in but from, from when she first started in is wearing, you know, basketball shoes to her first rivalry into Liz Craven and she's establishing herself. And now she's just won the world title. And now into the latter part where she meets um, her third rival, but uh, it's Joy Namani. So in 2017, when she bested Craven and took the lead in that rivalry, a new rival emerged and just in third place of those ladies and just one kilo behind uh, Liz Craven was Joy Namani. And Joy Namani, 2017 bronze medalist, going into 2018. She should have won that year, though. She should have won 17. Well, she missed her last. Was this the one where she started? She missed her second and her third. In third deads, pulling. Well, she, she's pulling huge. Like, what, what was the. Here, I'm going to. You yeah, tell the story. Because you were there. I, you, were you handling? Yeah, I was, I was, you were, yeah, I was in the back with, with Marisa. That, or Marisa and Susie were uh, competing. Um, so, yeah. So, basically, um, Marisa missed some squats or at least one squat and we're basically kind of falling behind we felt like we were falling behind at least i did and i was like oh this isn't going great and then all of a sudden like joy missed a deadlift and liz missed it and we're like wait what's going on here this is like really working out well for you know kind of it's kind of snowballed but i'm pretty sure joy like would have sewn the thing up with her second deadlift if she would have make it made it um I'm going to pull it up uh, right yeah, now as we, as we speak. Yeah, so yeah. it looks like she took 182.5 on her opener and then missed 191 twice. And so that extra, that eight and a half kilos would have would have given her a 421 total and, and right. that would have put her into, into first place. Right, right. So it looks like she did. Okay, so yeah, was it looks great. like she did need that, but yeah. So she, she came close and she was trying and pulling. So it looks like she... She definitely had another kilo winner to best um, Liz Craven. Well, I shouldn't say definitely, but she mm-hmm. more than likely had another kilo winner to best, best Liv Craze, Liv, uh, Liz Craven to take the silver medal. Instead decided, and which is, you know, you got to respect, I'm pulling for gold. And um, tried it twice over and, and just never got that. So, and, and this was the first time into one, the the world championships and she won it i mean she's born in 76 and this was 90 or sorry 2017 so she was already a master lifter by the time she won her first world championships um and then 2018 i'm gonna bring up my notes here gentlemen uh yeah so 2018 and and it doesn't slip at all so she, she won in 2017 with 420 and once again checks in with a 420 but joy didn't miss and hits a 430.5 kilo total. And that's when the spread starts happening. So previously where she was missing her final deadlifts and fell behind a little in 2018, she really unveiled the full package and her full potential. And it's not that Inda was slipping or anything. She maintained. And again, she's in her early forties. So the progress is going to slow a little bit, but she hasn't begun slipping by any means but Joy's starting to pull away and has a sizable, uh, just slightly over 10 kilo advantage. 2019, they have their trilogy matchup. And um, this time Joy does miss a couple lifts, but Inda only gets four lifts in and the wheels fall off. I can only 
um, assume it's the national team coach's fault in terms of mishandling her. But, um, but uh, Joey gets a 432.5 and, um, and wins relatively smoothly. I mean, a 20 kilo gap in the 52 kilo class. That's about as smooth as you can get. So it's somewhat anticlimactic, but it's still yet another trilogy at the world championship level between some world-class lifters. And it seems like India is always in a showdown, uh, no matter what. And look at, she put a four, uh, four, 12.5 kilo total. It's not a crazy slippage. I'm not entirely sure what, what happened there. Cause I seen that she missed, she almost bombed out on squats. And then after a shaky squat, she's got a big bench and maybe she could pull together on bench and she misses two benches. And now by the time deads rolls around, I mean, she still ended up taking a silver. It's not like, you know, she totally even, that's how strong she is. She could get four lifts in and she's still world-class taking the silver, but things really started unraveling. Um, you got, was she dealing with anything back then in terms of like injuries or whatnot, or I know she had to travel. Well, I was going to say just in, in general. Yeah. I mean, like when you're that high level and trying to get everything right for the world championship and everything like that is tough. So if you go look at her numbers is yeah, you see like, you know, in the, in the U S at the Arnold, she does 430, And then at 2017 world, she goes down to 420. Then she does the Arnold again in 2018 does 427.5. And then at world, she goes down to 420. So it's like slight declines at the world championships. And then for 2019, she did the 412.5. But again, since then at, at the U S meet at raw national, she did 427.5. And at the Arnold, she did 425. So again, her total is like, you know, building back up at the, at the U S level, we'll see what she can do at worlds. But yeah, at that 2019 world, she was dealing with some, some personal issues. And obviously yeah, at the, the squat depth, you only get the opener and you lose, you know, five, seven and a half, maybe 10 kilos right there. That would have put her into the four twenties. Yeah. Wouldn't count Marissa and out, right? Like she well, doesn't, doesn't seem like international meets. She consistently miss, misses squats on depth and like, she's gone one for three or two for three on, on depth, even, I think from memory, she got, she even got one red light on the lift that she did get uh, for depth on, on, on one of those meets. And so like, if she can consistently get that depth down, that's another 10, potentially 12 kilos, like, like right there, if she can start putting, putting that back together. Right. And that put, then that puts her from, you know, mid four twenties into sort of high four thirties, four forty, And and that gets her relatively close to joy. I mean, what's joy's best total like four sixty, right. Well, to that point, Joy is gone from the 52. She was on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago. And she oh, said, she I'm, yeah, yeah, you're right. She said, I'm officially a 57 and I don't see myself going back now. So, I mean, this is almost a segue to who's Inda's next big challenge because Inda is always knee deep in a rivalry, apparently. <laughs> so, well, and this is, go ahead. We all know that. Say, yeah, I was going to say, as Rory said, like while she's having the squat depth issues, if you go look at her other lifts, for bench press, she's been progressing nicely. Like, you know, she did 95 in 2017 and she's bumped that up to 97, 98 and hundred at her last meet. So the bench is going up the deadlift. She had a little bit of a, a of a dead zone. So she did 27.5 in 2017. And then she didn't hit a PR until end of 2019. She finally hit 190. So now that's moving up too. So like Roy said, if she can get that depth down consistently and add, you know, seven and a half, 10 kilos there, all of a sudden, then she's going to be back at the top. But yeah, the contender is going to be uh, Nomi Alibert, right? Uh, out of France. Um, you know what? Yeah, for 100%, uh, Naomi is an absolute monster. She moved up from 47. So in the 2019 World Championships, she got a silver medal in the 47 kilo class. 
moved up to 52, took the European title and um, is really blossoming in the 52 kilo class. It was a really good jump for her to move from 47. And she is, um, and she's, look at there's, she's about, I think she's in her 20s somewhere. India is now approaching in her mid forties, which I love when I see a lifter be able to maintain like that and, and stay at the world-class level. Um, but there's, there's a bit of an age gap there in terms of rate of adaptation and progression. Um, but it, it, Marissa's a big game hunter, you know, she's pulled it off at the worlds before. Noah Mee's put uh, 80 kilos on a total in the last two years, right? Which is about when she started working with, uh, with Panna. She's yeah. PR'd every meet, like a total PR every meet for the last five or six meets running. Like, I don't, I don't really believe in momentum being a thing, but like, if there's, if there's a groove for, for getting better, like she's, she's in it. Uh, that, I mean, that's also, also going up the weight class. <laughs> yeah, gaining weight is a lot of fun. <laughs> so but it's we'll, not. We'll, we'll see how much that levels off, but it'll, it'll be interesting because you know. Uh, Naomi has the bigger squat. Marissa has the bigger bench. And then they both have the same exact PR Delft at 190. So like, that's going to be an interesting battle at the end. Can someone please pull up Naomi's the last meet in France? Yep. And France had all yep. of their champions. looking at it. Yep. Okay. I just want to get that total. Listen, Naomi, I get it. She moved up a weight class, but she has a total up there right now. That is bonkers. 427.5. Well, there you go. This is good enough. This is world championship gold medal territory. And should it won't, that alone could win it. And it wouldn't take a whole heck of a lot. Like we're talking, if she adds two and a half to five kilo, we're talking world record territory, the best we've seen at any world championship. So she's already there in terms of rate of adaptation and gaining. She's already there. And we know Marissa's already there as well on a good day. Um, we just need Marissa to have a good day, Naomi to have a good day, and we got herself a new rival from France. Marissa's got to get through American Nationals first. You're right. You're <laughs> That's right. Gonna a, it's going to be a tough weight class for sure. I should not look ahead, look past. You're right. Yeah. For, for, Naomi's actually light as well. She's only 51 kilos when she did that, um, whereas like Marissa is consistently, you know, 51.8, 51.9, 51.7. Like, I think uh, I, I don't think she, you're right. I don't think she has a big cut, but I think she's naturally pretty close. Um, so it shouldn't be too much deviation. I think it's more squat depth, but there's deviation in her total. What do you guys for, have? Sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to finish it off for, for all the people that say there's no uh, depth in the, uh, or no battles in the lighter weight classes, including some of uh, we say it sometimes too. Looking back at now, it's pretty interesting seeing like, yeah, Marissa versus Susie, Marissa versus Liz, Marissa versus Joy. Now it might be Marissa versus Naomi. And then like Bill said, she might have a battle between one or two people at nationals too. So all of a sudden this 52s at least has some rivalries and back and forth over these past few years. And there's hype on the first. is a fun class. I, I, there's, a, there's a lot of depth in that class and, and like a lot of juniors coming up as well. There, and there's hype on the French women's side. I mean, they are all shooters in pretty much all the weight classes. Um, there's going to be some other French women in battles for sure. Um, so who's going after Rory? It's my man, Bill. All right. This is going to be the most unpopular one that's going on today. <laughs> but I got to say it because it's, it's, it's amazing. Okay. So from 2019, I'm sorry, from 2009 to 2019, these two were number one and number two every single year. That sounds like a pretty amazing rivalry for you, right? Okay. Yeah. There, there seems like there's a caveat coming. Okay. <laughs> We're all afraid to buy in. <laughs> the Ukrainian and Russian equipped men's teams went back and forth for the last 11 years for team champions. No shit. 
you talk about a rival, talk about two countries that are right next to each other, two, you know, one country that used to be part of the other country. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's, I'm, I'm sure there's way more in-depth stuff going on there yeah, for no sure. Kid. But like, just the fact that they went back and forth like that every single year, except for 2016 when Russia didn't have a team there. That was the only one that was different. But um, yeah, number one, number two on the men's, men's side for team points every single one of those years it was, it's crazy it's crazy 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 how good that those two countries are at the equipped lifting it's, it's a it's insane dude i'm gonna disagree with you if you thought that wasn't a good rivalry to name i think that okay. 100% i just is. thought dropping the team points is always you know a little, I, I mean oh I, that's gold that's i, I definitely i definitely looked it up because initially when i was looking up rivalries i couldn't think of any that popped in my head and i was like oh there aren't that many like lifter lifters like let me look at teams and the first thing that popped to mind was the men's equipped side, Russia and Ukraine yeah. go back at every year. And for if you go further back, uh, Kazakhstan was in there too as a good team as well. But yeah, I mean, these both teams have shooters. And, and on the Russian side, they also bring some of those lifters to the raw, like, you know, Fedosienko. Um, and so Glad they're kick. winning. Yeah, they're glad kick. they're winning the raw and the equipped. Yeah, no, I, I, it's not enough um, in terms of heat, in terms of, the, the nations going head to head. Like when you look at and for other sports, okay, if we're talking about hockey rivals like Canada versus Russia, Canada versus US, if it's hockey juniors, when you guys will probably bring this up later. And, um, or if it's the Olympics, man, we're looking at the Olympics and there's like national rivals in certain sports and it's deep and it's rich and it's historical. And your father would tell you, us against Sweden when it comes to the hockey or what comes to whatever. And it's generational and it means something and geographically it could mean something as well. They could be your neighbor. They could be whatever it is, right? It could be the, on the other side of the world. So you don't relate to them at all. And there's a language barrier. So you can't get to know them. And that actually keeps it tense. You know what I mean? So nah, man, I think that's a good one. We're, and I also think too, like with the government funded programs, like they have over there, yeah, it does mean, a lot more than it would to for sure. the US or Canada um, since, you know, we basically pay for ourselves kind of deal. So 100%. I think it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. When they show uh, up, sorry, go ahead, Rory. As I said, the coaches of those teams might be the only, only people other than like the four of us in the entire world who keep it, care about team points and like actually care about it and actually make decisions based right. on, on, on winning those team points. I don't know, man. I want to see more of it. The only reason why I think that might be the case, to be honest, is because in the raw side, which is far more popular these days, certainly with social media anyways, um, you're not going to see very many equipped lifters with massive following. So mostly it's on the raw side. We just don't have that. When it, I, I kicked off this episode saying it's not a war if there's only casualties on one side. When the U.S. consistently just keeps doing what they do in terms of the raw side, it's difficult to build rivalries. But let's say that it wasn't that way. Because we have to look at individuals if we want rivalries. But let's say like somebody came in and it became like Ukraine, Russia, where one year U.S. wins, another year Canada wins, one year U.S. wins, another year, and we're neighbors. And people are like back forth like that all the way through. It would be for sure. I could see people actually care. I know people will care about nations and sports because I follow other amateur sports with like Olympics and world championships and they will care. Uh, like with, with world junior hockey, listen, this is juniors and it's hockey and you can hear a pin drop when the gold medal game happens in Canada, everybody and their mother comes to work the next day being like, did you see the game? And they're either happy or sad or 
got some shit talk to say about the US or Russia or whoever if if they lost to them. It's a big deal. So it can happen in powerlifting. I think they will care. The problem is damned if we just can't in terms of the raw, which is in social media wise is the big one. We can't fucking break that. Do you guys see that happening in the future where like the rest of the Europe is certainly catching up. Rory, what do you think? I think the French woman in particular and might might be like like the US team has been dominant on the raw side for, for quite some quite some time. And I think between the French woman, potentially the Canadian woman and the American woman, like that could end up being a case where where you actually have to play for 10 points. Like France could have winners in the 52s, the 63s, the 84 pluses, like there's a lot going on there as far as team points. So like I think I think that could be a thing that start we start seeing coming out in the next next few years whenever if, the next classic worlds happens if you look at the juniors as well i had uh penna and um leah on the pad on the podcast and they were saying some of the juniors coming up the pipeline are absolutely phenomenal as well like the the women have definitely have shooters um in all the different weight classes and um yeah it, and here's the thing like if team canada jumps in and this is where it could hurt us where if the us is a really strong lifter in uh let's say like the 76s and if jessica bittner takes 76s and the us is like all right canada might not take us overall but we could have used that team points to beat france down the line you see this in, in the olympics and other sports as well where it's like we're not overall too worried about canada we're more worried about france but if canada wins a couple key key classes where we could have used those points we needed those points to add up against france and that's where other battles start happening and this is where strategically it gets fun to watch for the viewer as well so if you're rooting for team us and you're looking at you know whoever's going against bittner in 76 you're like this means something for 76 but on a bigger sense for team points you're like holy shit and then all of a sudden team france who might not have a dog in the race, so to speak, that's going to win 76 is like kind of on team Bittner right now because we kind of need them to beat us. And that happens in other sports in the Olympics and whatnot. And you see it and it's fun. It adds another dynamic to it where it's almost like a fantasy league team going forward. And that's your team. It's the same deal, which makes another dynamic that up until now we've been missing in a raw side. Anyways. But the, ma the main thing there though, yeah, is the main thing there is with a team like the US or Canada, and I believe New Zealand also, I'm not sure, I'm not sure but um, that are self-paid, right? We all paid it for ourselves to go, basically, is that as a coach, I know myself and Arian, of course, we're never going to make a decision for the team over the lifter, Yeah, right? We're not gonna be like, okay, listen, if we just wrap up second place, we can win the team title here. Like we would never, ever do that. If the lifter was like, hey, listen, I want to do this and go for gold and risk silver or whatever, totally fine. That's their call kind of thing. But it's not going to be like, oh, hey, listen, you can't do this and go for this because we want to guarantee a silver medal here or a bronze medal so we can wrap up the team title. Because it really doesn't, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really mean anything. I, I it would be almost heartbreaking to not, to do the opposite if it was government funded and someone's like, I need more team points. And this, we, I've heard, I'm not going to mention, but you've heard this happening where they're like, you're going for the guaranteed silver and we're not pulling yeah. for gold. Right. And that happens. And it's like, well, I, we need the team. At least pass the resistance yeah. to get the highest medal you can kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I believe that is the rule for one country where they went for the uh, Delif medal over the uh, total medal, because that mm -hmm. is the quickest medal to get or the easiest as far as the jump they needed. 
That was in Calgary. It happens. But, it, it, and that's why I'm into the national team points, but not, I, I don't want to start seeing that necessarily. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I was going to say the, the, the one U S story that I, that I remember of, of like a situation like that. And you, you can ask her the next time she on the podcast was, uh, was Jennifer Thompson. I believe the meet it was, cause I tried to look up her results was 2007 uh, bench worlds. They purposely moved her into a higher weight class so that she can bump other people down to have them have less team points. So us can win. So she weighed in at 60.43 kilos to go into the heavier weight class. Cause back then it was the 60 kilo and then the 67.5 to try and push down other people so they can win the team trophy for the U S but yeah, outside of that, like I haven't, she really still won it. though. She yeah. ended up losing to a Gundula oh. von. Uh, oh, right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the, the German. Yeah. Holy uh, smokes, she ended up losing too. She took one for the team, literally. Yeah, Gundula Fiona von Baches. Not that but, she uh, doesn't have enough titles, but. But, but what I was going to say is, from what I, I was thinking about the last time we had the podcast, is I think initially when these other countries are coming up, and maybe U.S. doesn't win as many weight classes, it still is beneficial for U.S. in certain situations because the championships, the 12 points can be diluted between different countries. So, for example, let's say Britain wins the 52s and then say like um, uh, for 63, say like Italy wins, say for like, you know, what different weight class France wins, but then U.S. comes and wins the 47s, 84s, and 84 plus because we have those pretty fairly on lock. Now, all of a sudden, we have, you know, three titles already and all these other countries only have one. And so it's going to be difficult for them to catch up in points. Um, but if some country ends up, you know, winning multiple ones, like if France comes and wins like, you know, two or three and us wins three, then it's going to be a uh, much closer. Dude. That's here's the thing though. Just looking slightly ahead. We're way too far out to talk about a preview show for 2021 IPF world championships. We'll do that later. But um, France does have a case for, at least two and possibly three. And the other classes that US has, has some stiff competition to pick up two or three. So you actually could see, and this would be wild, a situation where France could take the team. I don't know, we'll see what happens, but that's, it's exciting. Yeah, I was gonna say, that's why as, as a, as a U.S. lifter, if you care about the team points for the weight classes you're not sure about, yeah, you'd be rooting for Joy Namani. You'd be rooting for Kimberly Wofford. You'd be rooting for uh, Gara because you want France to not get those titles or other countries that may be up there. Look, at, nobody's going to give a shit until it actually happens. And then everyone's going to start asking questions like, how the fudge did U.S. finally lose? It's true. And it's going to be, and it'll be, obviously it'll be nothing to do with you guys as handlers too, or people like, well, what if it, cause you, are you guys already national team coaches or how does that work? Get so yeah, they, they extended everyone uh, the option okay. to take on another year since we lost a year. And here's the thing. It's tough because the rest of the world is catching up. It's got nothing to do with you guys long before we're even there. This is all forecasting people like, Holy smokes. You guys have the stiffest opposition we've ever seen on the women's side. And if it happens under your reign, it's one of those like, well, it happened under Arian. It's like, well, listen, my friend, um, the rest of the world was catching up long before any kind of game day decisions were made. Like this is, this is going to be tough, uh, but not to divert too much. I actually in, am done my list of the powerlifting rivalries because you guys took a couple and uh, we did a couple rounds here. Does anyone have, go ahead, buddy. I have one more that I had on my list, which actually 
goes well with what Bill said about the whole Russia for Ukraine. Cause my, my last rival is Russia versus Ukraine on the clip side is Dmitry Inzarkin versus Sergey Billy. Again, they didn't go against each other that many times, but it was, you know, all these top level competitions. So 2014 worlds and Zarkin beats Billy, but then 2015 and 2016 worlds, Billy, Billy comes and beats in Zarkin. So now he's up two to one. Then they go to 2017 world games and Billy beats in Zarkin there too. So now at the highest level he's won. Then at 2017 worlds, like I said, oftentimes lifters don't come back to do worlds. So Sergey Billy doesn't show up. So in Zarkin wins, but again, he wins without uh, Billy being there. And then that's kind of where it dies out because 2018 and 2019 worlds, they went to different weight classes and Zarkin stayed 93. Billy went up to 105. In 2018, they both end up getting second place. So they lost to uh, other guys in their respective weight classes. And then in 2019, in Zarkin got a win in his weight class and Sergey Billy bombed in his weight class. So even though they're in different weight classes, still a little bit of battle back and there, back and forth there, but still that run from, you know, in Zarkin winning the first one and then Billy winning two plus the world games. And then in Zarkin gets another one there, but Billy's not there to defend it. Hmm. That's, a, that's actually a pretty tight battle, especially yeah. this is in the equipped and national team points are on the line. So it makes it even bigger than just themselves if they win. Yeah. And, and with all those battles, they went back and forth, obviously, with the world records, I believe. And Zarkin had the world record in 2015. And then Billy had it in 2016, I think. And then Zarkin got it back recently. Pretty tight rivalry, buddy. I like it when the nations get wrapped up into it. Uh, fellas, do you have any more? A couple of little small ones I just want to kind of throw in there. We don't need to get really crazy into but um, uh, Ray against Jezza in the squat battle, right? The first one to kind of go for a thousand. So like they were never really like rivals for the total really, but like that whole squat battle of going back and forth with a thousand and going back and forth with world record. And like, you know, just the electricity of like when they're both squatting at a competition together, it's just like something like if you've never been there for that, it's just something you can't, like I just remember Belarus, that place was like shaking and stuff like that. It was yeah. just crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, that's a really cool one. Uh, another one I had was uh, just to go to the untested side was uh, Mariana against Steffi. They yeah. kind of went back and forth. Um, I mean, they did compete together in the same weight class, but it was more like a Wilkes based or points based, whatever. But they've done a couple of big meets against each other and they're, you know, super hyped because of their social media presence and how absolutely ridiculously strong they are of course but um there's been a lot of hype in those um and i just want to end up on a personal one for me that i really like so this was something you know in the early 2010s that um andre milanichev against yevgeny um Yadambash, they did the super cup of titans against each other you know boom boom, boom every every year and being, you know, a younger equipped lifter like I was back then, those guys were right in my wheelhouse of that, you know, 130 to 140 kilos. Um, it was just something I look forward to every year because those guys would just trade blows back and forth. Um, you guys probably never heard of, you know, Yarenbash, but at least you know who Milanichev is. Yeah. But they were, it was just a, such a cool thing for me because like, you know, they're on the other side of the world doing the same thing that I'm doing that no one else around me knows what I'm doing. Yeah. Kind of thing. But, um, and then of course they're just putting up these insane, insane numbers, but I just, that was like a personal one for me that I always look forward to every year. Cause it was such a cool, cool meet. It's something special about powerlifting around 2010 range. When there was like a rivalry on the other side of the world and you're into this sports rivalry 
and nobody around you knows about it. Nobody, but you're so into it. It's almost the equivalent of when you have that really good indie band and you're like, this is fucking brilliant. <laughs> this is masterpiece stuff and nobody gets it but me. And everyone's like, why do you like that band? And you're like, I don't give a fuck if you even like it. This is my band. You don't and get you're it. Into you don't it. get it. But. Yeah, if you don't exactly, and you slam your door and yell at your parents, you don't get me. But um, no, nah, man, there's something about that too to be said around that era. I remember. Uh, yeah. And, and do you remember who got the better of that? They kind of went back and forth. Because again, it was kind of a Wilkes-based competition. Oh, okay. Um, but they were also in the same weight class. So Milanichev would win one here and there, but um, Yadambash was actually a little bit bigger and lifted a little bit more and would win on points too. So it was, again, it kind of just went back and forth, but it was just cool because um, it, it was really head-to-head all the time. And I know Blaine was supposed to go over there one year to compete against them but had like visa problems or something like that. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, so but again, that Super Cup of Titans that was over in Moscow every year was like this huge, huge thing they did. It was basically kind of like our Arnold Sports Festival here that we had, like the Grand Prix. It was kind of like the best of the best. And, you know, Pazdiv used to be in it, and um, uh, uh, Alexei uh, Bilev was in it also, like the two big, real big deadlifters that were like 90 kilos and stuff like that. So it was a really, really cool meet every year. <sighs> Okay, fellas, that's a pretty good one to end off on the powerlifting. Does anyone, uh, does that conclude the powerlifting rivalries we want to go over? I was just going to ask. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, just going to throw the the squat stats real quick because I know Bill kind of downplayed it, but that is a pretty good, you know, squat battle and even powerlifting battle between Jez and Ray because Blaine had the squat at 400 kilos and Ray gets it in 2014, but then Jezza finishes 2014 with the record. Ray gets it again in 2015. Jezza takes it back in 2016. Ray and Jezza go back and forth again in, in 2016 multiple times. And while Ray hit the first thousand pound squat in a USAPL meet, national level meet, Jez is the first one to do the thousand pound squat in an international meet. So he yeah. has the, the IPF history. He's the one who broke it. And then from there in 2017, Ray bumped up further. So that's a really good back and forth multiple years at different meets and head to head. And, you know, one doing it at, at a national level for a thousand pounds and Jezza doing it at the international. And then finally with 2019 worlds, Jezza got his win. And, and it's not like a normal weight class where it's like, well, a squat battle is not really a rivalry. My friend, when it's the super heavyweights and we're talking the, the race to a thousand, yes, it is. It, it's no, you're talking, you're talking the most ever, right? It was the race right. for the most ever. Right. Right. Yeah. And then it, on, on top difference. of that, on top of that is one guy's like, you know, was a, uh, was like, you know, played football in high school and he's a high school, uh, he's a football coach now. And he's like from a huge country with, you know, 300 million people. Versus like Jezza from Nauru that has, you know, it's listed as 12,500 population. <laughs> I was just going to say the biggest global, you know, Titan in terms of a nation and then the smallest. That's like literally the size of a town. It's, it couldn't be better in terms of a matchup. And Jezza is as nice of a guy. I actually just posted, he hit me up. He's like, take a look at, can, you mind posting my daughter? And she's a teenager and she's getting close to like a 400 kilo squat. She's still a teenager. She's going after a world of course. 400 pounds. She's uh, 400 pounds. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. Kilo? Okay. Sorry. Um, <laughs> she's going for, she's close to a world record squat. Who would have nice. thunk it? Who would have thunk it? Huh? I guess Shocker. so. Shocker. But uh, yeah, there's something in the genes. And obviously Jezza knows a thing or two about helping her chase a squat record. Um, it's so also been national sport, right? Like you, you grow up in Nauru and you're like, man, I want to be Jezza. Like you, you grow up in the United States. Presumably I don't like, not everyone's like watching Blaine Sumner on TV. And it's like, oh man, I want to be Blaine Sumner when I will grow up. Yeah. Jezza's in commercials. Yeah. You ever seen his beer commercials? It's, it's amazing. That beer oh, commercial so is outstanding. I haven't seen this. 
I'll link it to you later. It's, it's and, so good. But there's twelve. There's twelve thousand people. Like, who made this commercial? It's not. It wasn't he sponsored or is sponsored by their like you know local like telephone local. company. Probably, but the, the commercial was for the local bear, though. Nairu is so fascinating to me because it's 12,000 people is a small town, so it's not you know, I it's hard to picture like, like, a, like a, a, a beer commercial means like how big could the beer company be, or how big could like, or how who put who like the, the broadcasting for King of Lifts has got to be like, <laughs> like on par with what they're putting out. Like, I'm not putting down anything, anybody, but all 12,000 people aren't in this beer company. Like you can't, how big are these companies that are? It's I mean, Naru's biggest export for a long time was, was bird poo. And they, they used to extract the phosphorus from it. And like, that was their main export. And like, that's what their whole co- economy was like predicated on. Like, it's not, you know. This is insane. You, you, you're, now, you're, now you're taking the piss as the British would say. You're just taking the piss right now. Is that real? Is that real? No, Um, I know it, you, it makes sense that obviously powerlifting might be the national sport because if again, 12,000 people, there's not a shitload of people playing sports because you have elderly, you have children. So in terms of the middle of the pack, people who are playing sports, if one of the people you have is possibly, you know, or he is the world champion, super heavyweight powerlifter real quick. Yeah. Okay. I guess it's powerlifting. If you're going to choose, you know, among your athletes, what, how are we going to choose our sports? It's going to be powerlifting, I guess, but they were, those dudes could not be nicer. When I met them in Sweden, 2019 world championships, all those guys around them could not be nicer. Jezza is such a fucking nice guy. And like everybody was lining up to take pictures with them. Um, when he won the world championship, the chair and down, right? He, he put the, the chair, chair down because his, his knees were, he was very badly injured going into that. Um, and he thought about not lifting and obviously thank God he did. That's the year he ended up winning it all, but that's what made it so dramatic when he missed his last dead and it came out of his hands and he might not be able to hang on to the dead and hang on to the title. Cause he was in the lead. And then when he won, my man stayed back there forever Every single person in this freaking lineup, because everyone loves Jezza, was waiting for a picture with him. And I'm like, Jezza, I hate to do this to you, man, because I know you just stayed here for like half hour afterwards. Do you mind doing like another 35 minutes with an interview with me? And I'm thinking, there's no way. And he's like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Let me grab a guy who speaks good English because he, you know, his English is somewhat spotty. And uh, we grab a man, ducked into a room and belted off his first and only podcast because he's got the Wi-Fi sucks over there. Apparently he was saying, he's like, we're never going to do this again. So it's got to be now. I'm like, let's fucking <laughs> my friend. Um, but anyways, let's move on to how, what, how are you guys doing for time? Does anybody got to check out? Nope. All right, gentlemen. Do you, do you guys got some sports rivalries? Is it my turn to go? Yeah, you're up, brother. Start again. Okay. I'll go. All right. Let me do some sports. I got one that one of you guys might say. So I'm going to say one that I don't think you guys will. Um, And this is actually going to turn into a bit of a uh, more of a venting session because this day and age, everybody and their freaking mother is saying Floyd Mayweather is the greatest boxer of all time, pound for pound. It's bothering me. And I'll tell you why. Everybody uses it. He's a phenomenal boxer. He's up there. But when people say the greatest and they say 50 and 0, man, 50 and 0, we haven't seen that before, 50 and 0, it comes with a caveat. And here it is. From start to finish, it was 49 and 0 with Rocky Margiano. But Rocky Margiano was never considered pound for pound the best boxer, even though he had the, from start to finish, 49 and 0 win streak. He wasn't, not only was he not considered the best 
boxer pound for pound, but he wasn't considered the best heavyweight and not even second best. It's Muhammad Ali and Joe Lewis. If you want to argue Joe Lewis over Muhammad Ali, fine. Okay. So let's just keep hold that for a second. But in terms of win streaks, sugar, and this sets up the rivalry and why this is so important. And you guys may, may have heard this before. Sugar Ray Robinson boxed in the 40s and 50s. And at one point as an amateur, he went 85 and 0 with 69 KOs, turned pro. And at one point as a professional boxer in the 1940s and 50s, and my friends, raise your hand if you have a friend who boxes professionally. Exactly. But in the 1940s and 50s, they had four times the registered boxers. In terms of the athletic youth, people weren't in MMA. People weren't doing, in North America, rugby and these other sports. There was boxing was massive. And it can't be understated how big boxing was. Four times the registered boxers that he had to face. Every street corner, everyone knew somebody who boxed if you're a young man. At one point, Sugar Ray Robinson's record was 128 wins, one loss. Follow me. 50 and 0 is cute. 128 and one loss. At one point, a 91 fight win streak. It's fucking ridiculous. Now, let me also put it in perspective. So that one loss, have you guys heard of who Jake LaMotte is? The Raging, Raging Bull, Bull, baby. That's right. We said it in sync. The Raging Bull fought Sugar Ray Robinson and Sugar Ray won in a decision. The second fight in the rematch, the first man ever to beat who they called Superman, they thought was unbeatable. Sugar Ray Robinson, 128 in one, that one loss was to Jake LaMotta, who ended up afterwards winning the middleweight championship and going into the Hall of Fame. How huge was this win for Jake LaMotta? It made him, it was, it was like fucking Superman had just lost a fist fight. Nobody could believe it. A rematch had to happen to let you think how often these guys fight. So this is why I say 50 and 0 is cute. You'd never lost. That's great. They rematched 23 days later. 23 days later, after going 10 rounds, they rematched. And Sugar Ray Robinson won the rematch. Here's something else that'll blow your fucking mind. They rematched 23 days later. Sugar Ray Robinson had a fight in between those two matches. Okay? So I don't want to hear about Floyd Mayweather, 50 and 0, fighting once a year and blah, blah. And one of them's against Conor McGregor, who never boxed before, yada, yada. Sugar Robinson, for all boxing heads who actually know the history of boxing, is hands down the greatest. And people who say Floyd Mayweather is the greatest probably couldn't tell you anything about Sugar Robinson, which tells you all you need to know about their boxing history. Now, to tell you how the series ended, um, Sugar Robinson ended up besting Jake LaMotta, I believe, five out of six. In the last fight, was for the title and Sugar Robinson and fought him on Valentine's Day and they call it the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And he battered him so badly, the entire front row was covered in his blood. And uh, Jake LaMotta had never left his feet. And it was the saying when I became famous, you couldn't knock me down, Ray. And you couldn't knock me down, Ray. And that's um, Robert De Niro in The Raging Bull. And uh, it's one of the, it's a, it's a famous rivalry, if nothing else, because even though it's one-sided, nobody beats Superman in his prime. And the guy fought weekly. Yeah, you talk about having a bad day. 
how badly bruised was this guy if he's fist fighting every week against world-class fighters and nobody could beat him ever. Couldn't catch him on a bad night. And it finally happened with Jake LaMotta. It's a big deal. Bam. There's the first one. And I also want just want to fucking school these kids who thinks history started in nineties and Floyd Mayweather is somehow the fucking greatest of all time. All right. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, I, I, I pulled it up real quick just to look at the stats. Cause it, it I, I, I don't really follow boxing that much. I don't follow the, the older generation that much, but I was just looking up. So yeah, 1942 is when, yeah, he fought Jake Lamar the first time beat him. And then a few months later, 1943 is when he lost. And then, like you said, two weeks later, he fights California Jackie Wilson. That's and, a long, that's a forties nickname, isn't it? And 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 then the interesting part is, who knows what the, what it was actually happening there? Is he won he won by majority decision? So first he got his first loss, then he wins by majority decision. So now you're like, oh, it, is he done? And he decides to do the rematch a week later. Imagine that, like you lost to the guy, then you barely squeak out a win. You're like, let me rematch the guy I just lost to. And that's so. The, and uh, sorry, go ahead. No, it's good. So February 26, actually today, 1943, he rematches him and beats him. Holy smokes! I swear to God, I did not do that. It's purpose. not February 26 for Rory, though. Just to be clear, it don't matter. <laughs> it don't matter. Rory's in there. He's celebrating. Then, then the other interesting part is like usually, like in, in like boxing and UFC and stuff like that, you might fight someone two or three times and that's it. Like if you lose twice, they don't give you a rematch. If you go one and one, they give you that that, that trilogy and then kind of that's it. So they had that trilogy, but then yeah, like you said, they fought again. They fought in 45 and uh, Sugar Ray won. And then they fought in 51, six years later, and Sugar Ray won. And Sugar Ray, I mean, Sugar Ray won the title. I think the middleweight championship like five times. He won the welterweight championship. He moved up for the light heavyweight championship. This is when they what they only had one champion per weight class, not four of them. And they didn't have nearly as many weight classes. And he was winning the light heavyweight championship um, ahead on points. He ended up passing out in between rounds in the 14th round um long story anyways but yeah he's he's by far so there's sugary there's sugary robinson and then in the 80s sugary leonard came around and when his name is ray obviously he's named after ray charles as if that's not greatness enough you got named after ray charles he wanted to call himself sugar and everybody said nobody takes sugar because there's only one sugar ray and leonard's won the gold medal in the olympics in montreal in 76 and he asked sugary robinson can I, I'm, can I take the name? And Sugar Ray Robinson told the media and everyone else, I gave the kid my blessing. This kid can have it. And it's like being ordained by God, my friend, if it's boxing. And Sugar Ray Leonard went, it on, went on to win, I think, five titles, five weight classes, becoming one of the greatest fighters of all time and lived up. But if he didn't live up after Sugar Ray, everyone's like, you don't fucking touch that name. And Sugar Ray Robinson's like, lay off the kid. I see something. You know, he saw something and he said, the kid gets it. That dog, you bet. If the pressure wasn't on Sugar Ray the Leonard, there it is. He had a good, uh, good uh, rivalry as well. Oh, Sugar Ray Leonard had a million. Dude, Sugar Ray Leonard was, look at, I'm going to start dominating here, so I'm not going to. <laughs> but um, in terms of like Roberto Duran and like all those, he, he was in the, the 80s were fucking bonkers in the welterweight division, middleweight division. He fought Hagler, fought Thomas Hearns um whatever but but that's like a Wilfred uh, Benitez. it's like an interesting similarity there too where uh sugar ray leonard went 27 and 0 and then he loses his first one to roberto duran comes back and fights him again tko to to uh revenge him 
revenge the win and then fights him again uh, uh, nine years later and beats him again. So he went two and one against them. It was a no mass. The rematch was a no mass. It wasn't straight TKO. It's when uh, Duran famously quit and said no mass. And um, yeah, Duran was a, Duran's the greatest lightweight of all time. Look at fellas. I'm serious. I will dominate that. I used to write for a boxing magazine and um, work for like the local hall of fame uh, uh, boxing in Canada. Like no joke. This, I fucking love this stuff, but I'm not going to do this. Uh, who wants to go next? And then I'll go again. I, I, uh, I not guess, right away. Not right away. Wait a minute. I mean, I meant that was who go around. Uh, I guess <laughs> we can, right away. I, I'm sorry. I'm getting excited. I guess we can go in the uh, in a, a similar order. And um, I mean, there's a lot of big rivalries out there. So some of the ones I saw was like, you know, for basketball, it was Celtics Lakers, which we've mentioned previously before on the podcast. For football, it's like Packers Bears. For baseball, Red Sox Yankees. For college football, Ohio State and Michigan. Um, Ali Frazier is also a big rivalry for boxing. For our buddy Rory here for rugby was the All Blacks and Springboks, which is why I wore my my jersey so for anyone who is uh, watching our videos. But for me personally, the biggest rivalry had to do with I grew up in Miami and I went to school at Florida State University. So Florida State University versus University of Miami is a big Florida rivalry where they were playing every time in the regular seasons. Uh, usually it was like the very first week of the season. Then they kind of moved it to like week six, but also sometimes in the bowl game. So, you know, it's the battle for like who's the best in Florida and especially the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, both teams are really good. And if you like lost to them, that really means that like you're not going to the national championship and the other team's probably winning. So Why I think, right, uh, man? yeah, there's all the, all these like final plays where it came down to like the Florida State kicker, like, you know, missed the field goal a little bit to left or a little bit to the right that cost them, you know, their whole season and stuff like that. And overall, uh, UM is uh, 35 wins and Florida State is uh, 30 wins. Oh, uh, but shit. He, so good back, great battles back and forth. And so many players from both those teams that have made it to the NFL and became like, you know, all pros and everything like that. It's just crazy the amount of talent in Florida and on both those teams and how down it was. So that was always a rivalry for me was I went to school at Florida State and we always went to the games. And, you know, it's always like, you know, the crowd's crazy. People are fighting. The team sometimes are fighting. It might be raining on the teams. Like it's all muddy and stuff like that. And all these big hits and everything like that. And it always came down to like, you know, the very last play. Um, it reminds me of in Alabama, they have a, they had a mass. I don't know how it is now. At one point I was in there, uh, in a yesteryears and they were taught telling me about in Alabama college football, you don't cross that family line on Sunday or whatever day it is that they play. I don't know if it's Sunday or Monday night or whatever. Their families generationally root for the specific team and you don't date outside someone who it was fucking deep. Like it was yeah. you, Alabama or, against Auburn. Alabama, yeah, Alabama and Auburn. Auburn. And it was, and I'm not a football yeah. guy. And they it's were called saying, the iron like, bowl. Yeah. That's your name for it every year. <laughs> if you, I was like, how big is this? And they're like, okay. So if a hundred thousand or whatever people are inside, there's another hundred thousand outside. They're like, if you're generationally Auburn and your son goes to the university of Alabama, it's fucking like, you can't even look at your son. You know, you're like, get out of my fucking house. I can't even tell my brother. I want you to get out of my house when I, I call your uncle. Shit. I'm, I'm going to call your uncle and vent right now, but I can't even look at you in the face. <laughs> especially, if, especially for like the, the last 10 or 20 years, like really like Alabama, Auburn, Florida, all of them have been have been really good and have really big battles. And when they're whenever they're on like, you know, NBC, C, CBS, ABC, whatever like that, they have some of the biggest ratings ever for any football game but for the i looked it up for florida state um in 2006 when they went at each other it was the most watched espn game ever holy shit do you know the ratings 
I, I couldn't find the ones on that. I found the ones on like the uh, Alabama and stuff like that. They were at like, you know, 25 to 30 million people were watching. <laughs> Shit. Listen, I'll tell you what. Um, a Muhammad Ali, this is so this is the be- beauty of back in the day when there wasn't that many much television to watch. There was a Muhammad Ali fight and it was like close to 100 million people watched it. Um, now this is this late seventies when you have not nearly as many channels and options, but Ali was the biggest sports person in the world for any sport period. And like, I mean, close to a hundred, listen, when Conor McGregor boxed Floyd Mayweather and 4 million people bought the pay-per-view, we thought that was bonkers. That's a joke to what Muhammad Ali was fighting under in terms of pressure and eyeballs on you and be like, well, there's a lot of pressure and build on this one. Guys like Ali, I'm just, that's why I'm telling you when I say like Sugar Robinson and what they had, like they were, the viewership when they were on TV was fucking massive and everyone knew who they were. Um, who wants to go? Who got next? Who was, who was next in this lineup? I think we shifted the lineup. So it's either. Rory's up. Okay, go. Bro. Um, so I'm going to go with uh, an All Blacks one, like uh, Arian sort of referenced. And so the, the All Blacks have a lot of rivals, right? Like the All Blacks are sort of debatably the, the best rugby team in the world. That's the New Zealand national team. And I mean, you could, you could, you could write a book of all of the, the rivals of the All Blacks. Like there's New Zealand, Australia, obviously there's, there's this joke that, uh, you know, I support New Zealand and anyone who's playing Australia, just at any sport, like regardless, uh, there's England, there's Wales, there's France, there's like basically any country where rugby is a thing. It's like, you know, New Zealand and that country. Um, but the big one is South Africa is the Springboks. And so like Ariane's obviously worn that shirt like specifically to rile me up, which which I appreciate. <laughs> so first first game of All Black Springboks was 1921. So that was a hundred years ago, um, which Holy which I think is kind of cool. Um, and they played 99 times in the last hundred years. Um, and so it's currently 59 to New Zealand, four draws and 36 to the Springboks. So New Zealand ahead, but like not by a ton. And so there's been a lot more games recently because obviously they used to have to, you know, catch a boat for like six weeks to play rugby against each other. Um, and so they didn't, they didn't used to play very often. And these days, like the games are getting like much closer together. Um, they're the only two countries to win three Rugby World Cups each. So Rugby World Cup only happens every four years. So like winning it is like quite a big deal. Like it's way more like winning the world games than it is like winning a winning a regular world championships. Um, but the the big thing, like the, the time when it got really dirty was in um, 1981. It was apartheid in South Africa. Um, and the South African rugby team, the Springboks, wanted to do a tour of New Zealand. And um, they actually tried to do a tour of, of Australia as well. And the Australians tell them to um, get lost because like they didn't want their uh, sort of racist rugby team touring, touring the country. And New Zealand sort of controversially said, yeah, you're allowed to tour here. Um, so they sent their, so South Africa sent their team um, and there was, like, there was riots and protests in New Zealand. Like every time there was a game, like there would be rioters outside in the streets. And like at one point they like breached the, breached the stadium and like managed to get into the stadium and like they had to get like police to kick them out. And um, in order for the South Africans to play against New Zealand, this is horrifying by the way. Um, in order for the South Africans to play against the New Zealand rugby team, they had to declare several of the Maori members of the of the All Blacks, uh, you know, uh, native native people of New Zealand. They had to declare them honorary whites, or the um, or the South Africans wouldn't take the field against them. What? So, like, that is like that's disgusting, right? Um, and so, oh and so like God. it's just every, every time New Zealand and South Africa play, there's just like this, there's this like hundred year rivalry of 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 this and like and like the last 40 years have just been dirty right like south africa plays new zealand they come to new zealand and they cheat 
and New Zealand cheats as well. And New Zealand goes to South Africa, New Zealand cheats, South Africa cheats as well. And it's like, it's, it's just like dirty, filthy games of rugby. And, and it's like, it's like, it has to be one of the, the, the biggest rivalries that I know of. And so anytime New Zealand plays South Africa, like I don't, I don't even like rugby that much, but New Zealand's playing South Africa and like, I'll, I'll, I'll find somewhere to watch it. Brother, I'm trying to digest this. Hang on a second. <laughs> all if, I heard is they're all dirty cheats. If I, <laughs> if I was part of uh, the New Zealand All Blacks and I wasn't white and they said, I will play you, but I'm going to make you an honorary white. I'd be like, go fuck yourself. Yeah, this is why it's controversial, right? I would be, I would be like, (laughs) I would be so offended to be like the only, like, it's not even like if you were a part of a, a, a culture and they like, as an honor, like if I'm in Japan, like you're honorary Japanese citizen or something like that. Like that's like, that's a, that's a nationalism, but it's not even like, like that. It's more, it's racial and I won't lower myself to participate against you because you're like, that is a whole level of, you know, wow, man. So that tour is one of the things that we learn about in like New Zealand history in high school. It's like, because it, because it was such a big thing, right? And like the country was massively divided and some people are like, we shouldn't let politics into sport. Like we should let these people tour un- under whatever terms they're happy to be here if, if the Federation is willing to accept that. Um, and there's lots of people who are like, no, like, you know, it, it would be tantamount to letting a country with any country with with questionable politics, like a, I don't know if easy, if we said, easy, easy. Know, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> easy, you know, like any country with with di- military dictatorship or something, and you'd be like, actually, we don't want that that country coming here and and doing this sort of friendly rivalry thing. And so and so, like the whole country was absolutely divided on this, and they spent sort of months debating it backwards and forwards, and there was riots, and people lost friends over it, and you know, like. Like people got people got hurt in these like protests and these riots and these, yeah, it's difficult. They played like, a large number of games. Um, so there was only three New Zealand South Africa games. Um, and New Zealand won, won two of them. South Africa won one of them. Um, but South Africa also played a bunch of the regional rugby teams in New Zealand as well. Um, and they won sort of most, but not all of those games. So it might have been fifteen or twenty games in total. Um, and most most of them against like you know the Auckland team and the Waikato team and the the Central and, Districts team. In Africa, South Africa won the majority of those in that. Set- up the big all blacks they um they spaced them out so i think it was uh new zealand south africa was one of the first games um new zealand won the first one and then there was sort of like a number of games where they played sort of the regional teams um then there was another another one with south africa won the second one and then there was like sort of a number of more regional games and then there was one final one in the series where where new zealand won the final one and then they um they actually went to the u.s afterwards and they, they did a tour of the united states as well and i think they only played like seven seven Wait, games there. south africa won two out of three New Zealand won two out of three. Okay, sorry. Okay, um, dude, this is fucking. This is a dramatic. This is a really good one you brought up, by the way, because I love it when it intertwines a little bit with history and we learn a little bit of. Uh, and it does raise the question: like, should politics be in sports? Because sometimes, um, you know, not everybody involved in as on the athlete side is involved on the government side. Like, in terms of, like this government's a dictator. Should should we allow them in? But there's you know, some athletes were like, man, I didn't choose to be born here. And I'm trying to make the just best. want to play, life. you know, like, yeah, I just want to play and look at, I couldn't defect if I wanted to, and I would love to. And sports is one of the th- only things I got. You want to take this from me? Fine. Send me back home where I'm under a fucking dictatorship because I was born here. I didn't choose this. Like it's tough. It's real tough. Right. Um, and then there's other points where it's like beautiful things have happened in the Olympics. If you watch like two nations who are at war, 
and two athletes from the two opposing nations face off. And it's happening straight up in boxing matches and they're Rocky. Well, okay. (laughs) Come on. But um, in boxing matches, judo, where you're actually fighting and at the end, they'll shake hands and everyone's waiting. Like, will they shake hands? And that's a beautiful fucking moment where it's like, it's a, you know, I don't know, some humanity about it. So I see the argument for both, right. Where it's like, if we can look past it and then it shows people look to we're all human, man. Um, when you lay it all on the line, but yeah, dude, that was a good one. That was a good one. Rory. Well done, sir. Well researched as well. Uh, Bill, what you got my man? Brian Shaw against Zajuna Zavikas. Ah, we're going back to the strength sports. I mean, just as you know, you're talking strength sports. That's what we talk about most of yeah. the time. You know, it was a seven year stretch where either one of them won either the Arnold or the, uh, world's strongest man they were basically one two one two one two for seven straight years um insane rivalry just back and forth they just keep pushing each other you know shaw's log press got better because of zavikas and zavikas you know started moving stuff faster because of shaw kind of thing like back and forth um just two legends of the sport and they just hit each other at the right time where they're both peaking at the right time and it's just amazing amazing to watch because you knew it was going to be one of the two you just didn't know which one, you know, and yeah. that's what makes a really cool rivalry. It's like, okay, yeah, we're basically just watching these two guys. Um, and it was, you know, most of those world's strongest men. It was just like, we don't even need to watch the other eight guys. We're good. Let me just see these guys go head to head in this stuff and let's see what happens. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I've you know met both of those guys and I'm sure you guys have met some of them here and there, or whatever. I mean, just, you're talking, you know, w- you know, we're around powerlifters a lot. These are different animals, man. These are just like, you know, Brian Shaw hand is like, you know, you know, shakes my hand. It's like this big kind of thing. You know what I mean? You know, it gives me a fist bump and it's like two fists in one. You know, it's, it's insane how big these guys are. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just, that's the best strength sports rivalry in history, I think. Um, and then just a quick nod to like uh, John Paul Sigmundson and Bill Kazmaier. That was a cool rivalry they had back in the eighties um, going on, but yeah. Um, and who ended up winning more? Four and four. Sorry, they're four and four? four and, well, I guess Shaw has four wins over Zavikas because Zavikas beat um, Pujanowski before Shaw was into it. So, uh, head to, so head to head, it's four to three in World's Strongest Man. But in the Arnold, I think it's like, um, I don't have to think, but I know that Zavikas has won way more Arnolds than yeah. Shaw has. Like overall, overall resumes, uh, Zidru- Big Z has it. Yes, the overall resume with the world records and the Arnold, Arnold Classics. Yeah, yeah for sure. Because, yeah. I mean, they say like, you know, the world's strongest man is the world's fastest, not, not the, the world's strongest man that can move competition. Yeah. Whereas the Arnold is always going to be the world's strongest man because it's more static because they have way less room, right? Because when, you know, when you go to an actual world's strongest man event, you know, you have the outdoors to play with and this and that, where the Arnold, you basically have, you know, a 30 foot stage and that's it kind of thing, right? So there's no truck pulls. There's no that kind of stuff. It's mostly static strength stuff. We, you know, always have a deadlift. They always have a dumbbell, always have a log, um, you know, three of the six events or five events, whatever. So, um, yeah. But yeah, but they basically went back and forth, back and forth. But I think Big Z got the best of the the uh, the rivalry there, but not by a huge margin. No, that was definitely close. I mean, um, and Brian Shaw isn't totally out of the woods yet. I haven't. Yeah, I mean, is he pretty both, much? They're both still competing, but they're not really. Big Z's done anymore. 
I, and I say that, I don't say that talking shit, but I don't think Big Z has done, I think he, in the Masters maybe, but in the Open, is Big Z hasn't done nothing, right? I don't think No, he hasn't done anything, but he still trains and he still says he's going to come back. I mean, so we'll see. But yeah. I mean, Shaw had a pretty poor showing the last two years. I mean, poor showing. He got fifth place, <laughs> fifth strongest man in the world. But, you know, for his standard, it's, right. it was a poor showing. And he's getting up there in age. You know, he's an old guy like me and you, so you know kids and all that stuff so that takes a toll on you yeah where's it down who's yep. next you it's me okay let me take a look at what i got um i got one here you guys might have it but i'm gonna do one that i know you guys won't have i'll bring it back to boxing again but this one's a good one i'm gonna bring you back to 1909 now you guys probably are familiar with jack johnson in 1908 um, won the heavyweight championship of the world and is the first black man to win the world championship. But before he won that, and he won it from Tommy Burns, who was a Canadian. So Tommy Burns won the world championship and every single world champion before him drew what they call is the color line, meaning you're white, you win the heavyweight championship and you say, I will no longer be fighting anybody who isn't white. And I will not defend the world championship against anybody who isn't white. On the way up, you could fight contenders who are white. But once you win the title, you draw the color line is what they say. Okay, so everyone before him drew the color line. It, so that meant guys like Joe Jeanette, Sam McVie, Jack Johnson, and Sam Langford, all they could fight white contenders and they fought each other, but they never got a crack at the title. Tommy Burns, a Canadian, wins the championship and the press immediately asked the question, will you draw the color line? And like everybody before him, they expect, yes, I'm drawing the color line. Instead, he says, I will take on all contenders. I'm the heavyweight champion of the world, not the white heavyweight champion of the world. If you're boxing, you're going to get a shot at me if you're good enough. And everyone's like, holy shit, it's going to happen. Because Jack Johnson is 6'2", and uh, Tommy Burns is 5'7", and he's a little short, stocky guy who's tough as nails, but Jack Johnson was going to put it on him. Jack Johnson does put it on him, beats the piss out of him. Now, Joe Jeanette, who was a contender at the time, and Sam McVie were rivals, and they were fighting to get a shot at Jack Johnson. This is where the story gets interesting, and it's a little bit of piece of history, where people can be both hero and villain at the same time. Sam McVie and Joe Jonette fought a total of, let me take a look at here. Uh, he fought Sam, they fought five times. In April 17th, they fought a three and a half hour, 49 round marathon where Sam McVie dropped Joe Jonette 27 times to the canvas. Three and a half hours. 49 rounds, 27 knockdowns. Joe Jeanette got off the canvas 27 times, rallied, and then dropped Sam McVie 19 times in return. We're finally, after three and a half hours, Sam McVie says, I can't come out for the 50th round and quit on his stool. Insane. They fought five times. The record on right, it's one, one, and two with one of them being a no contest. So, uh, so they didn't give a, a decision at the end. So they were bitter, bitter rivals. After winning, Joe Jeanette told Jack Johnson, obviously I have to get a title shot. And um, Jack Johnson said, 
two black guys fighting for the title will not draw. I am not going to defend against you. And Joe Johnette famously said, Jack Johnson drew the color line against his own people. And that's where it becomes that it's a part of history that like, you know, the first black man to win the heavyweight championship of the world and everything he faced to do so was great. I mean, this is 1908 America and there was literally riots. And I think they said like 34 people lost their lives in lynching because he won the title and he was black. What he had to face was amazing. Very brave man. On the flip side, he could use that same, it, what previous white champions did against other black contenders. And the other black contenders spoke out saying, give me a shot. I'm the number one contender. And he would say, it doesn't draw if two black guys fight, so I'm not going to fight you. And I could just keep beating white contenders who aren't as tough as you. Very difficult times. And this is when the White Hope uh, tournaments happened all over the U.S. and they wanted a white champion. And that's where the term White Hope comes from, is this era when Jack Johnson was champion. 1915, he lost to Jess Willard. The White Hope era uh, closes because Jess Willard is white. And then there we go. Little history unboxing, fellas. Uh, the more you dig into it, man, it's um, it's an extremely interesting time period. Jack Johnson, also as a caveat, he he married a white woman. Um, it was like like white America hated him. Uh, he will he would do things like show up to press conferences um, in his boxing trunks, and he'd purposely stuff his boxing trunks in the front just to fucking fuck with people and give an interview like that because he <laughs> he was a very controversial guy um, and super duper brave, like to think about what he'd be facing at that point. But very very controversial, like all around though. Um, but yeah, I, I've read tons of books and stuff, and it's it's a fascinating era. But there you go. There's some rivals from over a hundred years ago. Who got next? Uh, I mean, I don't really have much much to add. I went over the quick ones that I named and stuff like that. The it, uh, only thing, if we want to go to like a different sport that I looked up was if we want to look at uh, tennis, was that there was a battle for a number of years on the on the women's side between Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova. Hopefully, I pronounced that right. Mm -hmm. From from 1973 to 1988, so another old school one. They played each other 80 times, and Martina won 43 and lost 37. And so it was a close battle and it was basically, you know, one was like, you know, the early on uh, better one. And then the slowly it was like, you know, the, the shift of balance, the other one coming up and, and winning. And so they met like, you know, 14 times in, in the grand slams with Martina winning 10 of them. And um, one of them, you know, was good at clay. One of them was good at grass. And so like, that was really, I guess, a, a, I don't watch tennis that much, but apparently that came up on a number of websites as a huge tennis rivalry and a big thing for women's sports back then of like seeing these two ladies go back at it. And, you know, one has their strengths and one has the other one's strengths um, back and forth and like, you know, different good on different courts and also like different tempers. Like, you know, one was had a temper and one was called the ice princess. So like, nice. it was like a nice little back and forth between the two for, for 15 years. Holy Imagine shit. having a 15 year rivalry with someone <sighs> like you would know that person better than, you know, yourself like any of your friends like you would just show like showing up 80 times and seeing that other person on the other side of uh, other side of the court and being like oh, okay here we here we go again yeah then you know it's going to be a battle who wants to go next anything else rory that's the only one that i've got researched enough to to talk about okay gotcha. 
um yeah so i'm a soccer fan so i am you know football but i watch um a lot of european soccer and i know there's you know a ton of different rivalries all over the world with that because it's such an older such an old sport obviously um so some of the big ones is like uh real madrid and barcelona um that's in spain then you have like uh, ac milan against inter milan which is in italy um you know manchester united against liverpool in england that kind of thing uh, but I knew there was a big one in, in Scotland, but I didn't realize how big it was. So it's uh, Celtic against Celtic FC against Rangers FC. And they've been playing since 1880, 1888 against each other. OK, they've played 422 times in that you know, 134 year period or whatever it's been. My God, <laughs> which is insane, insane. And so here's the kicker. It's 164 to 159 with 99 ties. So there's a oh five-game split in 422 <laughs> games. Oh, my God. Right? So if you can't, you know, you have this little tiny country, and they're both from the same city. They're both from Glasgow. And you're telling me it's just incredible how they can play that many times, and they're just like, you know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That For that long, for 130-plus years is, is completely insane to me. Um, like I said, I knew they were rivals. I knew it was a very popular rivalry, but I didn't know it was like that. Like you're talking like 400 games plus and you're within, you know, five games of each other is insane. Yeah, that's totally that's, that's another generational one, right? Like oh, you yeah. grow up supporting one or the other. That's sure. exactly what I was yeah. about to say too. Yeah. Um, I was uh, also uh, another story came about Jack Johnson. Just wanted to say too, I don't know if this has been attributed to him, but I don't know if this is real, but sometimes things become legend when it's over a hundred years old. He was into like race cars, but this is like when cars, like when you see their version of race cars in 1910, like 11, it's, it's funny. And not a lot of people had cars, but he famously, and this is so a Jack Johnson story was speeding as per usual, he would get in car crashes the whole night and a cop pulls him over a white cop. And this is America and whatever. It's a bad time. And um, the cops like, give writing him his ticket and let's say it's like $50 and Jack Johnson gives him a hundred dollars. The cop said, fuck's the matter if you use $50 and Jack Johnson goes, yeah, but I'm going to be coming back the same way later. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't know because Jack Johnson, he's such a controversial figure. You can't, you don't know if it's real or not, but you're like, I hope that story's real. Cause that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I'll be coming back the same way this afternoon though. <laughs> <But> that's, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, whose turn is it? Yours, yeah. Okay. You have any left? The other guys don't have any left. So all right. So here's the last one I got. I don't got a sugar load, um, but toxin about, again? To, no, no. I I purposely did. I was going to go into all the Muhammad Ali ones and whatever, but <laughs> I'm sure I talked about them all a million times. Everyone on the podcast has heard it. Um, going back to tennis, Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras, and this is a little bit ago, but not so long ago that it's lost in time. Um, Pete Sampras and Audrey Agassi, uh, let's take a look here. They were both ranked number one during the 90s. Sampras held the number one spot, then a record for 286 weeks. And Andre Agassi held the number one spot for 101 weeks. So if you think about the dominance, both these guys hitting the number one spot in tennis back and forth, um, they had like totally contrasting styles. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Andre Agassi. I read his autobiography. It's called open. Um, 
and it's like a pun, obviously all the U S opens and all the opens they have in tennis, but also him coming open and it is fucking phenomenal. I'm not a tennis guy by any means, an absolutely amazing book. The guy is extremely flamboyant over the top at one point in his life. And um, cause he's just looking for himself trying to, he was famous at 16. He's on the cover of magazines, multimillionaire and TV interviews, whereas Pete Sampras, the total opposite button up guy, Andre Agassi was rebelling because he never liked tennis, but was forced into it by his dad, would show up wearing blue jeans, cut off blue jeans, mohawk that was totally like, uh, you know, dyed and like the gloves he was wearing looked like a rock star's gloves he'd be wearing. Like he was, he was literally like a rock star in the late 80s going into the 90s. And um, then there became Pete Sampras, who was the button up collared polo style guy, totally opposite, but they swap back and forth the number one spot and Sampras who at the time could have been argued to be the greatest or at least up there now that we've had a couple other names I probably bumped him but Agassi going toe to toe with this Sampras and holding his own if not surpassing him during the 80s 90s era um, obviously 101 weeks is number one he had his time period up there and I believe they played each other 34 times with Sampras winning 20 and Agassi getting his licks in winning 14 of those, obviously. So it wasn't a one-sided battle against one of the greatest of all time. But honestly, man, if you're going to read a sports autobiography, this one's a, this one's a good one. Andre Agassi open. It's in, uh, it's in most people's top 10 all-time sports autobiographies if you search it. Since you read his uh, autobiography, do you know where his uh, family's from? Um, his dad is from Iran. His dad was a boxer, sir. And a uh, super duper hard man. Like he so, had, you know, it always you know, comes back to boxing somehow. Right. Yeah, nah, that's right. I, I, I was trying to bring it back to Iran because everyone in my family knew who Andre Agassi was and watched him was always rooting for him because he comes from Iran or his family. Yeah. No shit. Did you know about him? Did you read his book or anything? I didn't read his book, but I know like for my family, like that, like uh, that was like who they knew, especially like the ones who came from Iran to the U S they didn't really watch like U S sports, but they all like were obsessed with Andre Agassi. Cause like when we were growing up, he's like some Iranian descent tennis player who no was shit. like, you no, know, really good. Yeah. His dad like full on, he, he describes his dad in his book, heavy accent, a boxer box twice in the Olympics. I think super hard man and had Agassi like in front of, he said, I need you to hit a million balls before you turn pro. And I want you to turn pro as a child. So he had him every day after school, he'd pull him from school, actually hitting balls in this one machine that would shoot balls at him at like a hundred miles an hour. And he had to just hit the, he said like, I need 10,000 a day. I need, his dad was a crazy taskmaster, abusive, um, yeah, he's from a different generation, but he's a boxer on top of that. And he pulled him from school and sent him to a tennis school where he did tennis. He did schooling there, but it was almost all tennis and he had no say in it. So when he was 16 and a pro, when he was wiling out and, and dressing like that and the kids in the, in the 80s thought he's so cool and a rebel. He was like, I was like living a life. I, I hated tennis but I was one of the best in the world. I was a prodigy. I was a teenager and I could beat any man in the world, but I hated it because I never wanted to do it. And my fault, like we're talking physical abuse if I lose and whatnot. So how I, how I wild, like rebelled back, I show up with a mo tennis was so preppy. I show up with a mohawk, cut off jeans, fucking gloves. Like I play the guitar and you're in a, for guns and roses. Like he was, it was cra It's a crazy story, but it's a beautiful story, man. And then in the end, him and his dad make solace with it. And he ends up long after his dad, no longer has power over his life. 
he ends up outlasting Sampras and playing until he's 36, which is extremely old for a tennis player. His back is ruined. And he's like, I don't know why I couldn't quit when everyone's like, give it up. It's, it's over. And he's like, I fucking hate tennis, but I can't. It's a, it's a weird love-hate relationship. And um, it ends up like, I know it's such a beautiful book, man. <laughs> I don't want to ruin it, but yeah, you would like it. I wonder how many people would, would like, you know, take his life on knowing what he went through at that love hate relationship, but also knowing that it's a Wikipedia list. He made $31 million in prize money, eighth all time leader in earnings. And his net worth is 175 million. So pretty solid for the beatings he took. Well, look at you. God damn it, Arian. (laughs) Look at you. Boxers have done worse. And, um, he married a famous uh, tennis player. Steffi Graf. There it is. And she's a phenomenal tenant, like an all-time great herself. Mm-hmm. And he talks about it in a book too. Like he was with Brooke Shields, like the famous actress back in the day. She was uber famous. Like, dude, his fucking book is phenomenal. But um, yeah, I mean, he made, he made his money during it. The thing is in terms of fame and money, how many rock stars are filthy rich, filthy famous, and then fucking commit suicide. Like it's not, I know it's the old cliche. It's not everything, but at certain point when you're tormented, uh, some of these people are tormented, but it's a, man, it's a really good, it's a good one, fellas. I'm actually out of my rivalries. We've been, okay, Bill. I got one more real quick. All right, all right. I knew you did, big dog. I knew you want to go back to the strength sports real quick or consider strength sports. All right. So I got someone who's won a competition eight years in a row. Okay. I got somebody else who then has come in second place for four of those years and then ends up winning the same competition an additional four years in a row after that. So 12 years in a row, these two guys have been the champions or second place. Holy shit. I'm, t- I'm talking about Ronnie Coleman and Jay Cutler. <laughs> okay. Ronnie cranks out eight wins in a row, in the Mr. Olympia competition. Okay. Ties Lee Haney for the record. Jay Cutler, for the last four years of that, Jay Cutler, second place, second place, second place. What do I got to do to beat this guy? What do I got to do? Finally, Ronnie's going for that all-time number nine to be number one on the list. Cutler knocks him down, knocks him down a peg and just completely deflates him. It basically ends his bodybuilding career after that. I mean, obviously he was getting up there a little bit older in age, whatever. But, um, you know, ends his bodybuilding career. Cutler goes on to win four in a row after that. So, I mean... You're talking about, you know, 12-year period, or really, I mean, that six-year period in the middle where they're both competing against each other, where they're basically, you know, four for one, two for the other. But, I mean, it's a pretty big deal when you have someone going for the all-time record and that, you know, that guy who's sitting there in second place finally gets that, you know, that one on the top and knocks them out. I thought that was a pretty cool story. Um, first off, I'm a little offended. You call it a strength, strength sport, but I'm fine with it being in here because it is a rivalry. Uh, but, you know, it's... It, it, it is a big deal that you brought up the fact that he was number two for so long because there is something weird in bodybuilding. They were talking about how if you're number two too long, it's hard for you to get out of the judges' minds of being number one. Like Flex Wheeler was a phenomenal bodybuilder at one point, crazy symmetrical, but he just could, he was number two for so long. If it was close, they started, they did this with Arnold and near the end with um, Ronnie, they said, I mean, he's around 40 years old near the end when he finally lost. They're like the last time they gave it to him. It's like, this was close. We could have gave it to the other guy. If you don't retire now, you're going to take an L 
Like everyone around, same with Arnold, when he came back, um, it's a little contentious. Some people think he shouldn't have won his last um, Mr. Olympia as well, where it's like, don't well, he kind of cherry, he kind of cherry picked that one too, right? Yes, like he certain did, guys yeah. weren't showing up, so right. he's like, "Ah, eh, you know what? Let me hop into this real quick." Because, uh... and, and it becomes one of those where the judges are thinking, like, if you keep coming back, you know, like the last one was that was the last one because there was there's some talk that Ronnie wasn't quite near the end, right? Where what were we used to, and then, um, but yeah, Cutler eventually was going to win, so. It was the the number two became number one. Did Ron Ronnie keep coming back after Cutler was? I did, I forgot about that part of Ronnie's story. I thought Cutler took it and Ronnie didn't come back. But I, did he keep coming back for another few? Uh, let me see here. Uh, uh, that might have been it. I I just didn't. Oh, he got, yeah, he so that. he got second in 2016, 20, 2006, and then he got fourth in two thousand seven and was done. So Cutler okay. beat him twice and then he was done. Yep. Yeah, yeah. He he because I remember Ronnie fading like uh it was it was bad. And then obviously we know, it, here's what I will give Ronnie. He was a power lifter. He competed. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, yeah buddy. Lightweight. Right. And, um, ain't nothing but a peanut. That's right. <laughs> and he actually talks about openly saying, uh, and so did Arnold, that powerlifting gave me my base of and symmetrical very nicely. And then off of that, I did the bodybuilding to sculpt it. Um, but have you guys, Ronnie's been going through some hard times since then, since those golden years. Have you guys yeah. seen him on Rogan and whatnot? I saw his documentary. His documentary, that's right. Actually, yeah, yeah he was on Rogan as well. I saw his, I saw both. But um, I think he's doing slightly better than when he was on Rogan in the documentary. I think he started doing a little bit of a turnaround, but that's what it is. Yeah, but I mean, I think any power lifter, I mean, you, I mean, at least the, the older ones like me and you, you know, you look back and you see those, the videos of him in that Inzer squat suit, you know, squat yeah. 800 pounds and deadlifting and, you know, doing the, uh, the leg presses. And like, that was like, that yeah. was the shit, man. But, you know, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever it was, like, that yeah. was the shit we watched, man. Like, there wasn't these like awesome, like IPF videos that we could watch and these, you know, compilation videos and whatever. It was like, just finding random pe- videos online like that. And when you came across like a Ronnie Coleman, you're like, this is fucking gold, man. Yeah. This is <laughs> like, and then, you know, still today, I mean, yeah, buddy, ain't nothing but a peanut lightweight, yeah. baby. You hear that all the time. And that's his phrases. Yeah. No, it's my gym. Dudes in my gym still watch that stuff like in their car. Well, and, yeah, and because car, it just, like, it, on the way it just started there. That's why it just got there. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. put it on like a memory stick and put it on a carrier pigeon and it's like fuck nice. yeah I'll, i'm watching the video right now from 94 probably just got to new zealand yeah oh my god here we go here's some american jokes coming at you but but okay uh, go ahead i was gonna tangent you go uh no no were you gonna tangent about americans or bodybuilding or rivalries all rivalry what's that <laughs> all of it all of it yeah no 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 right i had a i had a no, left field rivalry for you but go ahead buddy go ahead chess so yeah. is it a sport uh, okay but I'm, I'm gonna say yes so um anatoly Karpov and gary kasparov um i don't i don't follow chess super clo- closely but I, I remember this one just now and I've, I've just looked up the statistics so they played uh 193 games kasparov winning slightly more of them but get this 28 wins 21 losses 121 draws Oh. Over <laughs> between, I think, I think first game was 1975 and, and, and Leningrad, um, which, which Karpov won. And I think their final game was in like 2004 or something. So they played each other like 193 times over like 30 years and drew the vast majority of their games. Uh, um, I think the, 
the one the I can't I'm not gonna pronounce this Gasparov is I believe he's Gasparov, yep. I believe he's the one I just heard him on a, a podcast, Lex Friedman, and he's talking about it. I think he's played several AI computers and one he's like outspoken against Putin, and I don't even think he could go back to Russia now. <laughs> and um they were talking about uh I'm I'm peripherally into chess, like I'm not at, like when the one show came out, uh, Queen's Gambit, which is a phenomenal show on Netflix, I started researching some of these chess masters. And um, the guy right, who's on right now, he's a younger guy in his 20s. And um, I believe he's Russian as well, though. And he, he's on like Instagram and stuff. And um, he is absolutely thrashing everybody. And they think they've never seen anything like him. And they asked this guy, could you beat him in your prime? And he's like, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this guy is absolutely – looks like he's on another level right now. And the PEDs, that's why. Well, listen, <laughs> no, but honestly, we, we joke, but they actually do talk about you can take things now in terms of hyper-focus and say – so it's an actual thing. If you were – if I sit you down, some of these matches last – like they can go forever in terms of match after match in these tournaments. And some of these guys might take stuff – where you're hyper-focused and you miss nothing and your attention to detail. If you want to gas somebody out mentally and stress them out, I mean, it doesn't take too much in terms of high pressure and then it's in a tournament and everyone's watching you, you prolong the game. But um, so there is talk of that actually, believe it or not. Some of these I like, well, nowadays they get, they take this, that, and the other in terms of memory. You could literally take things. Adderall or whatever before a competition and you're good. You well, it's not just competitions, right? It's, it's, it's also training, right? So, so, like to be an, a chess grandmaster, it's not 10,000 hours of like playing games of chess with your buddies. It's like 10,000 hours of studying openings and studying old games and seeing yeah. where they made mistakes. And like, if you could do enough drugs that you can study for eight hours a day instead of four hours per day, like that's a, that's a huge edge, right? Huge. I huge. mean, plus with, you know, you're talking, you know, someone that coming up with the internet now where they can literally just pull up probably every, every single archive of yep. game like, like that, where this other guy is actually reading a book in the 70s yep. about yep. the game that's happening yep. right like this he probably had to like order with like a mail away thing that took like six weeks right. to get somewhere and six uh, weeks to get back yeah he's got to get these books and yeah exactly yeah. uh no you guys are 100 right he, he actually talks about that as well as um the amount of like footage available like where previously you could never get footage but all footage is online on youtube and they study like you want to talk about football players studying football playbooks and they study previous chess matches strategies. So when they were asking him how him and his prime versus this guy would do, he's like, but this guy knows everything I know and everything since that happened after me though. Like that's where like he studied everything I've studied, but, and then some, it's like a, it's like science. It's like scientists from today. Are they IQ level smarter than Einstein, but do they know more? And that's where he was trying to say is maybe my mind, if I was born in this era, I'm, and we both started at the same base, I might've been able to beat him, but it's just like scientists from different eras or medicine or whatever. It's like, it's how can I catch up? He's seen so much more. Um, seen and, every and the game mistake is, I've ever made and, and learned from it. And he said the games like strat, the game strategy is still improving, which I can't wrap my head around. I think there's only so many possibilities, but he's like, yes, it is. He's like, like, you think like the board hasn't changed. The game hasn't changed. How do we still have more strategy? How many books can you write about a fucking chess match? And the way he talks about it, he's like, it's almost, it's like a calculator. It's, you could, 
It's insane. He's like, yes, it could be infinite. It's like, how though? How could you not have maxed out on the possibilities in no all strategy in the seventies if you started in the early 1900s? How 70 years later? And he's like, it's still going. It's because still- chess is like, chess is primarily a tactical game when humans play it, right? Like you, you build a position and then the first person who makes a mistake, um, like assuming both players are like reasonably competent, the first player who makes a mistake, they just get bulldozed because they've made like this tactical error. And so like the fewer tactical mistakes that you make, so humans get, we, you study, you get better at studying, you get better at studying positions of the board and you, you learn to make fewer tactical mistakes and then you can start to learn strategy. And so like what, what made like uh, Karpov really good in the seventies was that like he was tactically really good. And so like today we're, we're making fewer mistakes. And like, that's why AI, AIs beat humans consistently, right? AIs don't make tactical errors because they, they do all of the maths instantly. Like they do tens of thousands mm-hmm. of calculations a second that they, that a human just can't process. And that's, like, and that's why, oh yeah. It's, uh, AIs beat humans 100% of the time now, like, like a, like a well-tuned AI will beat a human 100% of the time now, oh, but a, but a centaur, like a human and a computer playing together will beat an AI the vast majority of the time. It's not hundred percent of the time, but the vast majority of the time. How is that? Is uh, ex- absolutely ex- fascinating. That's, that's what they call it. They call it centaur chess. And, and there's, there's a computer playing and there's a, and there's a human playing and they play together against another centaur. How? Why can't okay, I just imagine that. this is the half horse, half you know, person playing? Okay, just let me imagine that. That's yeah, better yeah. in my head. Bill, this is what we got to do to keep Bill in this conversation. But uh, no, but explain that for a second. What, so, how does a human play? They have hooves and they have a head. Uh, right, here we go. They're there at a keyboard that's special for the hooves. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so you um, would, sorry, go ahead. So, the, so computers, the, the computers do the tactical stuff of chess really well, right? Because you go, okay, like if, if I move to this position, then I'm threatened in these directions, but I'm protected in these directions and I'm protected by in more ways than I, I'm threatened. So if I do this, like it'll, it'll be a net, net positive for me. And, and, and you do that for every possible position that you can move to from with every possible piece. And you go, okay, well, this is the one that has the highest positive score for me. So I'm going to, I'm going to make that move. And so c- computers never get that wrong. Whereas humans get that wrong all the time. Um, but when two, two, computers are playing directly against each other like neither of them has it has a real edge because they're doing exactly the same sort of calculations and so then the humans drive like the sort of strategic approach where they go okay we're gonna you know we're gonna start by strengthening the middle of the board and then once we've got a strong middle side of the board we're gonna strengthen the left hand side of the board and we're gonna you know like they they drive this sort of strategic view and then the computer goes okay well in order to achieve capture the middle which is the like the stated objective like this is how the like they do the, the tactical calculations of, of how to achieve that. And so like working together, they end up performing much better than either of them working alone. And so it's just, it's just like a different, like humans, humans approach the game quite differently to the way computers approach the game. Can I just say something for half a minute for, no, no, for a long time, I was like worried about like AI is going to take over shit, but I think you just made the case that everything's going to be all right. We need each other. We operate, <laughs> we're better together. And I hope if there's any AIs listening to this, if they if they pick up this podcast, the RSS feed, we you need us too, bud. Okay, settle down. But that is interesting, though. Honestly, all jokes aside, to to think that, um, you know, together you would beat a computer. They're better off with human intervention in the game. And it's also fucking weird to think about two computers playing chess, just without us there. They're just going tit for tat. Go ahead, Aaron. No, it's just interesting. I was, I was looking up on Wikipedia to see what interesting stuff I got to find out what Rory's talking about. And apparently for this one organization, in 46 years, there was only seven players that ever had a number one ranking. And Kasparov had the number one ranking for 255 months straight. 
20, 20 years and change. He was number one ranked. He has the most amount of months out of, out of any of the, those seven. And so what, what part of what Rory's talking about apparently was uh, early on in 96, 97, IBM developed a computer specifically to beat him. So it says uh, in 97 was the first world champion to ever lose to a computer. He, he won the first set of six games and then he lost the second set of six games to the computer named uh, deep blue. And apparently it was like this whole publicized thing. So even in 97, a computer was able to beat the number one ranked chess player. But he also yeah, so that's interesting. Computer. So, so like no no human had ever uh, so no computer had ever beaten a grandmaster up until like 97 or something. And oh, I forget wow. exactly what year it was, but it was like relatively soon after, like it might have been 2001 or something that no grandmaster has beaten uh, like a properly tuned AI since like 2001 or something. Of course, you set the AI on medium difficulty or whatever so that you can be like, haha, I'm so smart. Um, but like like a, like an AI playing properly, like a grandmaster hasn't beaten one since like 2001, like very shortly after the first time that a grandmaster lost to one. Oh, wow, man. So I do remember like 97 when Deep Blue won. I was in high school and that was like the end of the world, right? Like now, okay, now the machines are singularity is coming. Yeah. Like, yeah. like literally, like that's what people were talking about. It was, it was, it was funny. You know what? And we're, I, we're still here now, 20 something years later. <laughs> so we're good. I do remember that as well about Deep Blue. Now that's starting to ring a bell. Um, but it is like, it's, man, it's part of history. It is crazy how quickly we had never lost to them. And then all of a sudden we've never won again. It's fucking eerie. But I do like the fact that we play better together. Um, Wow, man. I'm glad we got it. Dude, this, this, we went deep. We're past 11 o'clock on our end, but we, this was actually a pretty good discussion, fellas. I think we stopped talking about powerlifting about four hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> you might like that more. This is well, a chess podcast now. <laughs> this is, and I also think we're all on page with this is now a chess podcast. <laughs> everybody, everybody logs in, checks out King of Lifts tomorrow. And they're like, what the fuck? fuck is going on with king of the lifts it's all just like chess plays and like the greatest moments of chess and we're all debating on it but um i don't know man if people that's why when we were talking about earlier on if we should start off with powerlifting and then or start off with the general sports i think you show up for powerlifting and if you just want your powerlifting talk you got like we gave you like two hours straight of powerlifting talk and by the end of two hours i think even the biggest powerlifting nerds are like I'm okay if we digress. And if you want to digress with us and talk general sports, which we're going to hit a sport you like or chess or whatever the shit, when the fellas are on, hang out for another extra hour. And we're going to get into your favorite action movie heroes who are going to get into God knows what's next, right? But um, we didn't do our over-under, but I think we could save it. What do you think, Arian? We'll do one real quick. Do you want to do one? Holy shit. Do, was all, hey, you, yeah, do, just, just do one. We'll go around real quick. All right, all right, all right. Let's do this. <laughs> Bill's love of life. He's like, ah, fuck it. Tomorrow never comes. Let's go. Let's, his so kids are you on your uh, third monster yet? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll do it. Uh, I'll, I'll throw a little quick intro in again, just in case people haven't listened to the previous episodes. Is we're playing a game, overrated and underrated. So we'll pick a specific topic. And then we'll go around seeing whether we think that topic is currently overrated or underrated and explain why. So we have a, a, a long list of topics, but since we have all coaches here and it was mentioned, I guess I'll throw out the topic overrated, underrated that your powerlifting coach should also be a high level lifter. That's a 
fuck me. Damn, he goes into the tough one. I thought you were going to throw like just a little easy one out there for us today. So we get a quick one in. Um, oh, you're going yeah, for go it? Go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, go for it. Ah, fuck. I didn't want to go first. Like, Jesus. I should have shut up. <laughs> All right. You, you can't <laughs> shut up. I can't shut up for my own good. Um, it, we could go deep into this discussion, into an actual, and, and we probably will at some point dig deep, start pulling out research because you have lifters like Mike T who ended up being doing what he, not just being a coach, but his impact in terms of um, bringing RPE into programming. And like, he's left footprints in the game more or less than just like, so you got guys like Mike T walking around, obviously Bryce Lewis, world champion, IPF world champion, um, you know, Joey Flex, he hasn't won like a national world title, but he's also in the U.S. If he's in any other nation, he probably could have won a title, been to worlds. And I mean, he's squatting, um, if, correct me if I'm wrong, he's squatting 300 or sorry, 750 pounds, 340 kilo around. Like he's extremely strong. Either way, he's an elite power lifter. Um, not really, you know, need to go through the resumes, but you get my point. There's so many that you could say are, and, um, and there's probably more than I'm even thinking. And they're not just, look at, I know every single lifter is a coach. I mean, a coach with an actual substance team that's like made impacts on the game. I don't want to hear about like every fucking lifter has coached somebody. So if you do that, then yeah, the best lifters are also coaches. No, no, no. We're talking are the best lifters, the best coaches. Let's up it. Otherwise we'll be here all night. And that's where I'd say Mike T elite coach was elite lifter. Uh, same with Joey flex, same with uh, Bryce Lewis, same with there's a list. However, I think it would be from an outside perspective. If you walk into the sport, you would tell yourself you needed to be on uh, an elite level lifter to be an elite level coach. And I think on that aspect, it's overrated. I think the majority of people probably would follow elite level lifters and think I would, this is my coach. Look how strong he or she is. Look at what they're doing. Not knowing that is, <laughs> we know a lot of strong people who don't know the, the deep intricacies of, of programming or care to, and they don't, or handling or any of this. Um, so on that end, I would say overrated a bigger discussion we should have on a different podcast gentlemen at another time is, Further analyzing, not just overrated and underrated to the general public, which this quick discussion is going to be, but let's talk about how many elite level lifters became elite level coaches. How many people who have no real lifting background, like the Jason Trombley's of the strength guys become elite level coaches when he has like both. We've seen both. It's fascinating. And I actually want to get into the nuts and bolts of I mean, I think that's a good discussion, but that's a full-on podcast. So just for overrated and underrated, I would say it's overrated for the reasons I said. Who wants to go next? Aaron, what was the actual question again? I mean, it depends on how you want to how yeah, you want to spin it. Right. I, I'm asking it that your powerlifting coach should also be a high-level lifter. Gotcha. But over, overrated. Okay. So yeah, so that's overrated for me. Um, I don't think it's necessary to be strong at all to know how to make someone else strong i mean that's just not true i mean look at every other sport um you know michael jordan doesn't coach you know i mean like the the 
the highest level athletes are usually not very good coaches. I'm not saying that's the case in this, but I'm just saying in general, um, you normally have the people who are the journeymen kind of that become the much better coaches on a tactical side for most of the other sports. Um, so I'm going to throw this other one at you here too is, so if you have an elite level coach who's now coaching, I'm sorry, now lifting themselves at a national level meet, which you as the client are trying to get into. Now it comes to your biggest day of the year and your coach is not there to help you because they're taking care of themselves and not you. Right. So now you have to find someone else that you trust or someone your coach trusts or something like that to handle you at the meet instead of having, you know, the person that you or, you know, day to day in touch with that's handling your day to day stuff there to help you out. Um, I think that's a pretty big deal also. So I'll say overrated. Uh, I, sorry, go ahead. I, I, before you go, right, I just want to snowball off what are you saying where um, you're right in that other sports have shown the greatest players in those sports don't become the greatest coaches and you go down the list of all of those major sports. Um, and why would powerlifting be different all of a sudden for explain to me how powerlifting all of a sudden would be different for every other sport out there right. as a whole. And yeah. there are for sure anomalies that I've, I've named a few. Yeah, it doesn't mean you can't be just, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, that's all. It, it, statistically, it doesn't seem as likely. And go ahead, Rory. Sorry. If you, if you draw a Venn diagram of the skills you need to be a good, like an elite level powerlifter and a Venn diagram of the skills you need to be like an elite, to be an elite level powerlifting coach, the overlap between those two circles would not be very high. Um, one of the things in the overlap is care very deeply about powerlifting. And so in, in, in some respects, like there, there definitely is some crossover because, you know, if you spend a decade in the gym squatting and also you're like, okay, now I'm out of the gym. I'm also going to go read a textbook about squatting and I'm going to watch a video about squatting and I'm going to teach someone else to squat. Like all of that stacks up over time to like being a better coach as well. And so there definitely is overlap, but it's not a... I can squat 300 kilos. I can't squat 300 kilos. Hypothetically, I can squat 300 kilos. Therefore, I can coach someone else to also squat 300 kilos. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And there's plenty of examples of great coaches who were either never lifted at all or were like no better than mediocre lifters. Um, you know, we've got DMR Wolf. Uh, we've got uh, Boris Shako. Um, more contem contemporarily, we have uh, Al Alfred Jiang. We've got uh, Jason Tremblay, which you mentioned before, like, there's a whole bunch of coaches who are okay lifters, but they're not the 500, 550 Wilkes freaks who are the elite level lifters. So I'm going to say it's overrated as well. Uh, that's why I worded it that way, uh, Bill, because I thought we, I, I knew how we'd all fall and it'd be a, a quick one to go around. And I, I would put that also in, in overrated because, yeah, you look at all these other sports and you see that the top coaches, probably played the sport and maybe, you know, made it to high school and then couldn't go any further. Maybe went to college and couldn't make it further. And then that's when they switched over to coaching. Um, but you know, the, like you said, you're not going to have Michael Jordan coaching a team or, or LeBron James coaching a team. You have, you know, the Phil Jackson, the Pat Riley, the uh, Bill Belichick. And, uh, and for us too, you have people like, like uh, Rory said, like Boris Chico, like doesn't look like he's ever lifted in his life, but he was like, you know, he was one of the top IPF coaches. Unfortunately, they had some drug testing issues as well. And then now he's still known as one of the, the top powerlifting coaches. And so I think it goes to, you know, having the education and experience competing as a coach 
and actually going through the process and training everything like that gets you the experience of, you know what it's like, like imagine trying to write a training program for someone or, or like a training session, but you've never even worked out before. How are you supposed to know? Like how long is this workout going to take this person? Like, can they actually make it through, but you physically having gone through like a five sets of five, you know what it feels like you physically having done a water cut, you know what it feels like. So having that experience of actually going through the process at all the different levels will give you that additional experience. But, um, I think a lot of people, for some reason, in powerlifting, now in other sports, will say, oh, Sarah Brenner is really strong, or Jake Amendola is really strong. I want to be coached by them, not by the coach who coaches them to get them that strong. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm not sure exactly why. It's, it is true, though, especially with powerlifting, where it is so – genetics is such a big factor, where, like, you, you have a genetic – like, a threshold, a ceiling on – you could do the exact same programming and do work just as hard. It wanted just as bad as Taylor Atwood though. The strength guys will can put you in the exact same program, everything they can get you to your top that maybe you couldn't have gone going somewhere else. Um, it's not that it's just, if you're like, it's Taylor Atwood or bust, it's like, uh, you know, I'll outwork Atwood. I'll do, even if you did all that, there are ceilings. So having said that, when you look at somebody, you got to realize like, look at, they're playing with a diff different genetic pool than you. So, and they didn't study books, watch videos, et cetera, for that. They're just playing with that genetic pool. So that in and of itself from a mediocre lifter who did everything and a guy who's phenomenal, who did everything, they both might've done everything, but one guy ended up way further ahead has nothing to do with, he knows more, <laughs> right? Not saying he did less or he got lucky. He walked out of bed and that was there. They both did the exact same amount in terms of athlete performance. And that is not indicative of what they might know in terms of coaching ability at all whatsoever. It's got nothing to do with it. So that's why it's a funny variable to use when picking a coach. Is, well, yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the clout too, with people picking their coach. Oh, right. I mean, no, seriously, for sure. like yeah, for sure. if you can say, Oh, Ray Williams is my coach. Like, People go, oh, really? That's amazing. Like you go, you walk into like their local gym, whatever, be like, oh yeah, you know, Amanda Lawrence is my coach. You're like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, she's the strongest woman in the world, whatever. Well, you know what I mean? And they're like, oh, uh, you know, Roy Lynch is my coach. You're like, what the fuck is that? Like, you know, okay, okay. well, yeah. right. okay, exactly. Well, no, no, I'm saying yeah. any of us. Well, that ass, well, yeah. We had quite the rivalry in this podcast between Bill and Rory. <laughs> Listen, it all started have, in 2019 in Sweden. I still have a promo code. We still have a promo code for Bill's clients on to join Rory's team, <laughs> KOTL25. And, and Rory will give you your discount. But um, no, 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 but yeah, but honestly, like, like some people will pick someone because they have more Instagram followers and they're going to get themselves more Instagram followers, that kind of stuff. So there really is um, no real thinking behind some of it. Or I guess there is thinking because they're like, you know, I want to, I want to excel at this sport, but I also want to get more followers on Instagram or have a bigger social media presence or whatever. And that, you know, that happens and that's totally fine. If that's what you want to do, that's totally fine. Like, Oh yeah, I want to be coached by a world champ. Cool. Bryce Lewis is over there. Go see him or whatever. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. I mean, no, that, it, they, people want that and you just check the box. Okay, cool. Go for it. You know? Yeah. So like there is like, <laughs> and like, obviously Bryce is a phenomenal uh, coach, but that I know what you're saying where you're like, yeah, I'm not some people who won't, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean where you're saying like, they're not even taking that into account though. Before they even look at that, they would be like, yeah, for sure. There would, it would be, um, 
it's an easy way to cut the line if you want clout. It's just join the click, join the cool kids. And all of a sudden you get a shout out, you end up in their stories because coaches will always put you in their stories. And, yeah. and they'd be foolish not to uh, give their clients clout on their social media, which is so big because that does attract people. And people will actually lift, pay top dollar and get free marketing off of you. It all works together. It's true. It's also about marketing. So you join the team that you think I'm getting a coach and I'm also getting a bit of a marketing push and I'm having fucking fun. And I think the coach is super cool. Uh, so it, whatever, no harm, no foul. But um, yeah, that's, it's kind of the way she works. Right. But uh, yeah. And being strong helps with that. Wow. That was a pretty good one actually, fellas. How long was this podcast for God's sake? Three hours. We're getting close three. to close to three. How long's the longest one we've done as the fellas? You trying to beat it? <laughs> no, I don't know. Listen, I'm not drinking this time. I would have started drinking if we we're gonna do that. <laughs> if are, I get a drink to hang out with us, is that are, the, no, are you gonna just, smash food afterwards like you always do? I'm, gonna, uh, I'm actually out of macros this time. I, I I paced myself so I could go. But uh no, if we're ever gonna do a, a, if we ever decide we're gonna go on a full-on marathon. We got all the side. We're drinking on that one ahead of time because I'll shift around whatever macros and shit because I'm, I'm cutting down. I'm dieting. So we'll, we'll, we'll decide we're going to drink. We have to have some off topics like whatever, like we did last time with like, we'll do the powerlifting talk for a couple hours so everyone gets the proper podcast and we're not drunk by the time then. <laughs> but by the time we start arguing about uh, top 10 albums of all time or, or movies or whatever the shit. And we start arguing about silly stuff. We can be three sheets to the wind and let's push this bad boy to some limits and see what the hell we got. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We got to get all the tidy stuff out of the way though. Powerlifting talk over under. And, and then we agreed not to go back to powerlifting. So we don't bring anybody up while we're three sheets to the wind and get ourselves in trouble. <laughs> right? Deal. There we go. And Deal. All right, fellas. Thank you for your time. Much appreciated. Give everybody a shout out uh, for how they could get a hold of you guys for coaching. I'll go Who first. Um, yeah, uh, you find awkward. me on Instagram, uh, R-A-W-R-Y-L-Y-N-C-H, Rory Lynch. And I've just revamped my website, sisyphusstrength.com. There's some free stuff up there now. So if you like free stuff, have a look. Remind me to tag your coaching service as well, sir, when we drop this podcast and everything, if I forget. Uh, who wants to go? We'll let um, Arian go last because he's got a semi-announcement for those who haven't been paying attention to the King of the Lifts uh, Instagram. So you go ahead, Bill. Bill, I get the lift on Instagram. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. And Arian, let's hear it, playboy. Yeah, I was going to drop my normal stuff. Uh, my my personal website is palftingcoaching.com. My Instagram is Coach Arian K. Uh, what, what Ryan's hinting to is I made a switch from my, own, basically I was doing my own coaching under squats and science. So now I'm just switching over to the strength guys, which is a bigger online powerlifting coaching team. So you can also look at the strengthguys.com for specifically the strength guys coaching services and pick me as your coach. Dog, congratulations. First off. And when are you going to snag Taylor Ratwood from Jason? Is that what's going on here? This is a power play. This is chess <laughs> talking about chess earlier. This is the chess master moves right here. He got onto the King of List podcast. He got into the strength guys by 2022. The powerlifting world's going to be looking at, he's going to be the USAPL president. I mean, I'm already part of Taylor Ratwood's posse at worlds. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> 
That's right, man. You got a boss. You're part of the boss. You got VIP package. Yeah, he's got he's got Jason, he's got Ben, he's got his dad, he's got me, and he's got Bill. And he probably has like a nutritionist and he's got <laughs> something to do with the rub downs and the whole nine, man. Um all right, People fellas. Pay to do the rub downs rather than the other way around. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Bill gets the nanners. That's right. <laughs> banana duty. There you go. All right, fellas. Thank you very much, man. This is this is a three-hour marathon. Much appreciated. Thank you for your time and enjoy your evenings. We'll probably chat in like two seconds in the group chat, anyways. <laughs> Till next guys. time, everybody. Peace. See ya.